to BBC Two. Let's toast 40 for 40. Last post for Basil Fawlty in 1979. Something of a table wine. As that return of the saint was to TV heaven sent. As well as, if anyone cares, off went celebrity squares. The liver birds ceased flapping. Sykes finally stopped yapping, as did dear George and Mildred. All those shows considered dead. And, and telly had to dim its lights, losing that twinkle of starlight we called Richard Beckinsale. Far too young for that heart to fail. There were lots of new things, like Detective Eddie Shoestring, and Charles Endell Esquire rose from a birdie pyre. We met Arthur and Terry, new on that year's telly. And for a scarier drama, there came the Omega Factor. Then Aphrodite inherited, tales became unexpected, Flambards was all the rage whilst Telford had a change, Thomas and Sarah spun off, Sergeant Cribb went chasing toffs, Professor Quatermass had a blast, as Sapphire met Steel at last. Whilst of a lighter hue we got give us a clue, and Terry's greatest prank was hosting Blankety Blank. In sitcom land our Audrey went toe-to-toe -to -toe with Faulty. Penelope, mistress of scorn, became too the manner born. Agony and Shelley too were both brand spanking new, whilst Mork met up with Mindy, which got imported for ITV. But ITV went out on strike, reduced to messages like, There will be nothing, we say upon this channel today. Another Terry met June. Same shit, different living room. Now General Hospital was gone, only when a laugh came on. For alternative types of bruise, up popped not the nine o'clock news, bringing satirical new enraptures just in time for Maggie Thatcher. Sensible telly gave birth to Attenborough's Life on Earth, whilst Antiques got a road show, which is still going, don't you know? With nothing on t'other side, Doctor Who hit wild new highs, battling Scarath in Paris, alongside Lala, don't you see? Tom now had star power, opening up his book tower, but Book Rogers was on his way for a fight some other day. The kids got to play jigsaw, those perishers seemed so poor, Dick Turpin knew no fear, and we met old Wurzel, my dear. So that's 40 for 40, last post for Basil Fawlty in 1979, something of a sparkling wine. <laughs> Hello! Hello! I'm Andrew. I'm Lisa. Welcome to episode 40. Yes, around the archives. 40? How 40. did we get to 40? I don't know. Just by, by doing 39, I suppose, yes, and then yeah. doing another one. Yes, that would be it. Anyway, we have a theme, we don't do. we? Which we, we gave do. away at the yeah. end of last time. Mm -hmm. We should say thank you to Martin for the poem as well. Yes, indeed. Thank you to Martin. Yes. So our theme is. 1979. Yes, because obviously that's 40 years ago. Yes, which amazingly. was in the poem. So yes. yes, you may have already guessed. Yes. But we've got a, a smorgasbord. Oh, that's a good word. That's a word that Martin used on the Shy Life okay. podcast the other week. Mm -hmm. yeah, we have a smorgasbord of things, don't okay. we? Yeah. So we'll be doing a number of shorter yes. articles. Yes. And then we've got other people doing 
slightly longer ones. Yes. So you've got quite a lot of us this yeah, time. Yeah, but there's a lot of variety this yes. issue, I think. Yes, If you don't like one thing, then I'm sure you'll like the next. Yes. But let's just plug our videos, as mm-hmm. usual. Search yes. for Lisa Parker or Around the Archives on YouTube and mm-hmm. find out all about Are You Being Served and yep. Doctor Who and mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah. We've got the blog, which is still mm-hmm. sort of going along slowly. Just about, yes. Um, and it recently had a lovely tribute to uh, the late, great Terence Dix. Oh, written by written Warren. Written by Warren. Yes, so. indeed. So, yeah, we've appeared on the Shy Life podcast a bit mm-hmm. recently, so yes. we'll point you in that direction. And yes. if anyone wants to buy a mug off of our Red Bubble shop, I'd yeah. be very happy. Yeah. Please, somebody buy one. <laughs> but, so first up, mm-hmm. Warren, thee, and me yep. will look at the opening episode of season two of Grange Hill, mm-hmm. which is very early on in 1979. Yes. Then Martin. Mm-hmm. We'll take a look at the ITV strike. Yes. So we'll see you after those things. We won't see you. But, uh, well, yeah. we might come round. We'll be there after We know those. where you live. Hello, Lisa. Hello, Hello Andrew. Warren. Welcome, everyone, to 1979. Mm-hmm. How old were we? Very, yeah, very young. I was young. <laughs> I was, well... I, I was seven. I was nine. What we're going to do is a pick and mix thing. So yes. I will have a birthday at some point in 1979. Well, we'll all have a birthday at some point in 1979. <laughs> That's how it goes. So, first of all, <laughs> January 1979. Mm-hmm. Yes. Tuesday, the 2nd of January. Yes. And BBC One launches a new series of Grange Hill. At 10 minutes past five. After John Craven's news round. A series in 18 parts. The start of a new term brings new faces, a new headmaster and new problems, especially for Benny, who is suspected of stealing Grange Hill pupils. (laughs) (laughs) Shuffing Trisha Yates in his pocket. That's what it says on genome. Oh no, there is a full stop. He's suspected of stealing, full stop, Grange Hill pupils, and then the list of pupils. I don't think I would have seen this series. I think I would have been a bit too young. Well, if it's January 79, I I would have been 10. So I I, I definitely saw early Grange Hill. I I remember the episode we watched. Yeah. Uh, But I think... This was knocking around on VHS at some point. I think it was. There, I think I might have seen it? it on VHS. I, there was a compilation yeah. release of yeah. it. But okay. you've got the DVDs of the individual episodes, haven't you? Yes. Right? I didn't even know it was on DVD. Yeah, I, I, I did know because um, I think uh, Matt West was talking about because they've got so far and he was wondering if they'd do any, yeah, they're they're any more. Yeah, they're season six. All oh, right, okay. Yeah. So, but... Yeah, it was just really nice to see Bullet Baxter. Oh, we love Bullet, Bullet Baxter. Baxter. Which is weird, because when I was actually at secondary school, I hated my... my well, I didn't hate... I hated and feared my PE teacher. So did I, yeah. yeah. But yeah. he's really nice. Yes. He's, he's firm, but fair. With his pen, with, <laughs> with his pens, with his pens, with his, his pens. Pen. Why has he got pens? He's a PE teacher. He's he got a pocket full of pens. Kids. Or mm. kids, mm. the back of yeah, kids. kids. <laughs> Grange. But Hill. he was 
really officious, but there was just something about Bullet Baxter, yeah. wasn't there? <laughs> but this episode, it's the start of a new term, and I presume um, this is meant to be that like like September then. Yes. Yeah. So this is September seventy eight. Or mm. September 79. What, what's the Grange Hill dating? 78. Controversy. Controversy. Yeah. That, that, that's the thing. Because yeah. the, although this is January, it's yeah. clearly not January in the no, outside, when, is it? Because they've got a football match at one point and all the mums are watching with short sort of T-shirts and short sleeves Yeah, on, I noticed so. that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. oh, but the new headmaster has introduced a new timetable and yes. he's moving people about yes, between it's all, forms. It's all Barney's gone, gone, a gone bit to weird. rubble, hasn't he? Yeah. So, so who's the new headmaster? It's um, Sean, Sean Arnold. Sean Arnold, who plays Barney Crozier in Bergerac. <laughs> so yeah, when you said you brought season two, I assumed it was Mrs McCluskey, but it's no. not. Mrs McCluskey doesn't come until a Til bit later. later I think she's about... She might be season four, I think. Mm. Don't know. Yeah, Bridget but, the midget. Yes, mm. indeed. But do you do you like remember the layout of school? Because yes. it's starting to get fuzzy for me, to be honest. Because you said there was a corridor that reminded you of the English corridor. Yes. At QE. Yeah. yeah. So ha, 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 describe the sort of English block. I'm trying to think where it was. Um, if the main hall and QE mm. were where we had the headmaster's office, deputy head. Then at the end of there was the stairs up to the staff room. Right. And then there was the corridor behind you that went down to the first aid block and business studies. Yeah. And to the left, you walk down. The classrooms were on the left-hand side. Those were the English classrooms. Right. And on the right... What numbers were they? Because there was K block, which was maths, maths. and L block, which had the library in. I remember um, that. And the giant fire escape. Yeah. <laughs> and the art department on the ground floor. Yeah. Because um, I haven't been back to any of my schools. It, it's been demolished, totally demolished. You wouldn't recognise it. All right. The only thing that's recognisable is the main hall. They kept the main hall at the school. All right. Because you've been back to your school. I went back once. Didn't yeah. I go with you or yes, something? Yes, I think yeah. we went, I took you to a school reunion with yeah. me. And the first thing I did... Was apologise. No, was... <laughs> Go to the library yeah. to see if the Doctor Who books were still there, and they had some Target Doctor Who books. Were they there? I don't know if they were the same ones, but they did they have some oh, Target Doctor Who books. Brilliant. Uncle Terence was there. Oh, so. But in in this one, um, all the classes keep going to the wrong places, or yes. or they're double booked for mm. swimming or things like that, or gymnastics. And, and do you ever remember things like that happening when you had your new timetable? Did you ever go to the wrong pl- wrong place? No, it's really easy to get around the school. I thought, yeah, I, I, especially because we were in blocks, separate blocks, so yeah. that was easy to. So if you were going to the science block, that was G block. Yeah. <laughs> wow <laughs> yeah yeah but it's also sort of interesting to to, to see a, a little bit of home life of the pupils and you said yeah. this is this is sort of proto eastenders isn't it it yeah. is really because yes. in this episode benny's accused of stealing yes. isn't he because he finds a 50p yeah and then somebody is lost a 50p later yeah. on I, I think it's sort of as they say it's quite circumstantial evidence yes. isn't it because it could be anybody's 50p yeah because he was he, they're he not was marked the, are they no he no. was the last to come out of the change room yeah. what surprised me about the 50p is how big it was yes. i said it was a, a doubloon when yeah. he p- picked it up because it's, it's it's almost covers the whole palm of his hand it's it's huge and the value of the coin then was much to, more much more yeah. than it is now yes yeah. and it's interesting how, how small benny is as well yeah, yes. i forgot how small yeah. he was yeah. yes yeah because i 
can't quite sort of work out what age they're meant to be. Have you got, got well, if this is the second series, yeah, and they 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 started the school in the first series, yeah. you've got to assume they're around twelve. It's comprehensive, isn't it? So yeah. been we start 12, at eleven. 11 so. Do you comprehensive? Yeah. Well, we were thirteen when we started the comprehensive, weren't we? Yeah, but you went to middle school, didn't you? Ah, yeah. right. Okay. Middle school is different to comprehensive. I went to a comprehensive school, and I went there. When no, I, was I went 11. To, No, no, I went to a. We went to comprehensive. We were, QE yeah. was comprehensive, yeah. and that was a thirteen age start. But yeah, but yeah, that was described as middle school. Yeah. Okay. Wasn't it? Which is different. So when did you? How long did you stay on at junior school for? It would have been like th- till nine. Three years. So at first school, four years at middle school, and f- three years at QE. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, QE, the earliest you would have left QE would would be at age 16 at the That's end right. of your third year there, wouldn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. See, so I... Six, uh, and then you would go into the sixth form. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I did, I was, I went to, well, I was five, I think, when I went to infant school. Uh, and I did infant school and junior school, and I left junior school when I was 10, because mm. I wasn't 11 till the August. No, right. And then I did five years at senior school. Yeah, so it was a different. It's just, it's just mm. different areas have different school weird, systems, yes. unless it's a grammar school. Yeah. And then you did your eleven plus to get into grammar I, school. I, I, they didn't do that around where I live. Yeah, so I would have gone schools. to QE age mm. thirteen. That's right, because yeah. it's nine to thirteen at yeah. Bramble Middle School. Yeah. I would say that this particular comprehensive is not going to be like that because yeah. it's an inner city London school yeah so they're going to start at 11 so yeah, I'm going to say no, they're 12 go I can go with that because yeah. I can very much relate to this school this school is not dissimilar to the school I went to do you relate to the pupils in any way do in any of us relate to some the pupils ways. you think yeah yeah I mean yeah. That, so watching as a child because they always say you watch children acting and you always wince yeah but when you watched it originally yeah. were you comfortable with the way Child actors were portraying children at school. Well, it's yeah. interesting. I certainly didn't I- identify with tu- with Tucker Jenkins because no. he was the naughty one. And there was yeah. only one flipping neck in this. Yeah, yeah. You, you were doing a count of flipping neck. And eggs, I was disappointed. I think of all the sort of characters, and I've got the list of who's in this one. I think Justin Bennett was the nearest one to me because mm. he was the slightly sort of weedy bookish one, <laughs> and he he only got sort of one line. Yeah, yeah. that's the yeah. thing, but. I guess sort of, you know, sort of Tucker or Benny or are mm. like the sort of the main ones, aren't yeah. they? And other ones like Alan Humphreys. You it's sort of peripheral. Alan, I was yeah. the Alan Humphreys yeah. character. Yeah. But yeah, you, you also remember Trisha Yates as yes. well with, with a mostly made of hair, isn't yeah, she? she <laughs> yeah. But I, because I obviously, as I said, I was only sort of six, seven when this series was on. And so I remember, I came to it later in the sort of, early 80s so very much and we're gonna we have to mention mm. mr bronson yeah yes. very much in the mr bronson era so i sort of identified with roland because roland? i because he used to get bullied and i although i didn't get bullied a lot i got bullied a bit so i could appreciate mm. what was happening to him so he's my identification point for grange hill roland yeah right okay so but yeah, yeah. it was interesting uh the way phil redmond writes mm. the and the way the actors who were playing teachers portrayed their roles, none of it was played down because it's a yeah. children's program. Mm-hmm. It was played straight. And for the children, it was played straight. Yeah. And I think that's very much in the case of Phil Remond's writing. That they, they bought into that. They can see that he's going for something drastically new then, isn't it? Yeah. Because it caused so much problem. 
for the BBC with parents and teachers writing in saying yeah. this is horrible and how dare you show children and other people going this is too close to the to reality you shouldn't be showing this to our kids it's giving us idea if you remember in, in seasons to come where they have the protest march yeah. in a school uniform well, it's a school, SAG, SAG isn't it? it's a school it, yeah. action group that's or something it, like. yeah. but there's that infamous sketch in the young ones um, you know come off it Mr Liberal we're the only kids on, on, on television who don't say f- and then <laughs> cut away yeah. but I, I quite like the production of it because the insides of the classroom are, are, are on studio <laughs> yeah, videotape yeah. and it's almost like this classroom is surrounded by film. <laughs> There's no escape. So, yeah, I mean, that that, that was really enjoyable to it go back. It was a nice scene set for that. For that. And, yeah, and you say, it, it's perfectly watchable back. Yeah. It, it, it really doesn't sort of patronise you or anything yeah, And there's like no that. performances that you wince at. No, all, no. Of the, all of the talk... Even Mr Golightly. Even Mr Golightly, <laughs> who is a little bit stereotypical of that kind of, yeah. of teacher. Not that Blazer we had that wearing, kind of teacher. Blazer wearing, ex-military so, teacher, yes. yeah. Yes, we did have a teacher who used to throw board rubbers at people. Oh, we had a teacher that threw chalk at people. Mm. Yeah. Chalk. Miss Sadler Smith, yeah. her name was. And I he, won't tell you her nickname. He, th- he threw his radio out the window once because England lost a cricket, <laughs> which rather destroyed the point, really. Mr. Bays used to smoke his pipe in class. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Uh, and he used to smoke it whilst reading The Hobbit to us, which I thought was <laughs> that's very appropriate. I, like Gandalf, yeah, yeah, very appropriate, and nervous thought anything so you when you went into your next lesson and you smelt a tobacco the teacher just said you have mr beige didn't you we went oh yes and yeah. nobody was nobody batted an eyelid that you he wouldn't was get away with that is that his joke wow. yeah. anyway we'll move on to the next yes. thing in our pick yes. and mix absolutely so pull something else out of your sack warren i mm-hmm. shall indeed i'm having a rummage see you okay bye, I've been struggling to come up with anything original to say about television in 1979. Let's let's see what's on telly. BBC One. <laughs> well, there's nothing new I can say about that. BBC Two. Candidal Lyset Green explores the infinite variety of the front garden tonight at 7:30. But everyone's got an opinion on that. ITV. I believe there's a new Quatermass serial. Oh. We are sorry that programmes have been interrupted. There is an industrial dispute. Transmissions will start again as soon as possible. In the multi channel, multimedia 21st century, it's sometimes difficult to imagine the three channel world in which I grew up. Just as it's difficult for me to imagine the one channel world of a decade before I popped into being, or even that lost world without television in which gathering round pianos for sing songs were the home entertainment option of choice. And yet, in the second half of 1979, even the relative riches of those three channels were curtailed by the arrival of a long running daily transmission on ITV called. The Strike. To the casual viewer, the plot was relatively straightforward, with one of several varieties of plain blue caption cards bearing the minimal information of the ongoing story, pretty much 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for ten weeks. 
Now, I'm sure you'll you'll agree. It, it's quite a commitment to minimalist broadcasting, even during those relatively rich times where experimental arts programmes could still make it to air, even during prime time. And, of course, it did mean that programmes on the other channels did benefit hugely from drawing in the viewers who were less than taken with such fare and preferred the familiar cocktail of 321 and Coronation Street to fill their evening hours. During those ten long ITV-less weeks, Doctor Who gained record viewing figures for the story City of Death, and new shows like Shoestring and To the Manor Born became the huge, popular, well-remembered hits that they were, which they might not otherwise have done simply because, well, there was nothing else on on video. Cassette recorders hadn't come down enough in price to become the ubiquitous household items that they would in the next decade. Although, even though these were still times in which television was simply not a 24-hour service, and test cards and test cricket could fill several hundred daytime hours when you were a bored school kid during the holidays, and for one-third of potential programming was simply unavailable, you do actually find yourself wondering whether the BBC could have put out any old rubbish in the evenings and still got 18 million viewers. And of course, at that time, ITV had on its shelves quite a few shows just aching to be broadcast during that profitable autumn season. Apart from that prestigious new Quatermass serial from Euston Films starring Sir John Mills, other drama shows like the uh, new Sapphire and Steel stories and, and the Budgie sequel, Charles Endel Esquire, and Minder were waiting to be launched onto an unsuspecting public alongside light entertainment programmes like 3 to one and Only When I Laugh. Some series survived the delay in transmission. Others suffered badly from it, got sneaked out eventually in a much reshuffled schedule, and never gained the audiences that they might have expected or hoped for. The strike itself came about for several reasons, not least that striking was pretty much the in thing at the end of the 70s, especially at the latter end of the Callaghan government. You'll have heard about or even remember that whole winter of discontent thing before incoming Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher pretty much gutted the unions over the next few years. Some people, of course, maintain that's a good thing, especially when they can't get to work because of industrial action. But even in such times as we live in nowadays, what other power does an ordinary worker have other than to withdraw their labour, the one thing that they have that has value to their oppressors. Still, we're not going to focus here on the rights and wrongs of union action, merely to observe quite what was going on in the latter half of 1979 when one third of our telly got taken away from us. There was, of course, far less sympathy for telly folk than those working in heavy industry, as the arts, with a capital A, were still very much considered a bit of a namby-pamby way for folk to earn an honest crust. And when people were spending 12-hour shifts digging coal or welding rivets or making steel, you might very well wonder what on earth these people had to complain about in their cushy little world. And yet the disputes kept on coming, with various strikes across the BBC about shifting ladders and so forth, blanking out programmes from time to time, and these would go on, still go on throughout much of the 80s. So what was it about the 1979 strike that made it seem so significant and so memorable, apart from one of the first generations to truly be brought up being drip-fed on television on a daily basis, having memories of their favourite shows vanishing for much of the summer holidays, and long into the first term of the new year? It became, after all, the costliest, bitterest, and, by some margin, the longest dispute in the history of the collection of broadcasters known as ITV, and standing on those picket lines were several of the figures who later became high-flying executives in the TV industry themselves. 
Financial inflation in the 1970s was, quite frankly, terrifying and went on year after year after year. In the mid-1970s, it peaked at just under 25%, meaning that production costs for television programmes just kept on rising and rising at a rate that budgets set the previous year couldn't help but fail to keep up with. After all, as an employee, if your shopping cost a quarter more, you were going to put in a pay claim that at least kept pace, even though the government wanted to put in restrictions on the size of those pay claims to break the cycle. Across the board, ITV were in general making various small fortunes during what was a golden period for them in terms of popular programme making, share price increases and massive, massive profits. And their shows were constantly doing far better in the ratings than the BBC's were. And in those simpler times, they were getting a lot of advertising revenue from their customers. Because ITV, despite what people tended to suggest, was never a free service. Part of the purchase price of every tin of Heen's beans or Nimble Bread or whatever went towards paying for those adverts simply in a way that customers simply didn't notice, really. Or, in some cases, a granny understand. Anyway, the more expensive everything got, the more they could rake in, and, well, you, you get the picture. And the reason you were getting that picture was that the people making those programmes and putting out the signals and all of the 101 things that made that happen were members of various unions such as EETPU, ACTT, and NATTKE. Sometimes you really do need to know your act from your eat poo. So here goes. Eat poo was the Electrical, Electronic, Telecommunications and Plumbing Union. And they kind of did all of their fiddly electronic-y things in the studio that got stuff made and aired and they were considered a fairly moderate bunch. The ACTT was the Association of Cinematograph, Television and Allied Technicians and they were led by the militant Alan Sapper. N-A-T-T-K-E was the National Association of Theatrical, Television and Kiney or Kinney, employees, and they were the third of this big three broadcasting unions involved. In 1979, with inflation at the relatively healthy 13 and a bit percent, ITV offered 9%, which got rejected. The counter-offer from the unions was 25% to compensate its members for the real-world erosion of wages during all those years of near 25% inflation. You get the picture. Or rather, you don't. War to the death. And so, on the July 23rd, there was a national one-day strike by members of Itpu and Natki unions, and all ITV regions went dark except for two, Westwood and Channel. In the other companies, Itpu members had switched off equipment that ACTT members refused to switch back on again and operate, and therefore no television programmes could be made or broadcast. These were those such times, demarcation and the specifics of which people did which jobs, and if you touched that, we're all walking out. It may seem strange now, but that is how things worked, and to a certain extent how jobs were protected. And it could cost an absolute fortune to have such a large and yet broadly mono-skilled workforce. Of course, looking back now, some of those jobs might seem ridiculous. But I don't suppose any of us feel that way if it's our job that somebody else is deciding might be done better or more efficiently by someone else. 
Negotiations trundled on until the 6th of August. Only staff at Southern Television wanted to accept late July's 15% pay offer, and Eat Poo ramped up the pressure by starting a work to rule. This meant not working overtime, and because telly required a lot of overtime broadcasting as it did in unsociable hours, well, if you worked in television, that is, because somebody had to switch those switches as the nation sat down to relax of an evening, so the management stepped in to cover the absent Eat Poo members. And at Thames Television, the ACTT membership refused to work with those managers who were filling in for their union colleagues, which got the ACTT shop steward and his deputies suspended. And because of that, the whole of the ACTT walked out and Thames Television was blanked out. A similar uh, situation involving management-built lighting rigs causing a health and safety risk blacked out HTV and Southern was temporarily blacked out due to overtime ban issues, but in that case the ACTT members allowed the management to step in and pictures were restored for a while at least. However, heels, as they say, were being dug in. Trenches were being dug and a long dispute spent staring across the no-man's land of various executive car parks was becoming inevitable. The staff of ITN walked out on August the 9th and by Friday the 10th the entire ITV network went dark, apart from Channel Television which had been struggling anyway and negotiated a deal so that it managed to stagger through with local programming and feature films. Early attempts at arbitration came to nothing and playing hardball, ITV, or as it was then the ITCA, basically threatened to sack the lot of them if they weren't back by the 23rd. The ACTT refused to be threatened and would not negotiate, and so for the next ten weeks, apart from in the Channel Islands, ITV basically displayed local variants on that message I quoted earlier, some of which became like old friends to households who would never watch the BBC under any circumstances because the rating monitoring service did mention discernible numbers tuning in to that almost blank screen and the music playing alongside it. Perhaps it was soothing, comforting even, less harsh than the radio if you wanted to do some knitting. Or maybe people simply thought if they waited long enough, the programmes would be back on eventually. Ten weeks! Ten flipping weeks! People were still used to transmission breaks and the potter's wheel and perhaps, just perhaps, thought that this was a similar thing and if they just hung on, they might be the first to make that telephone call to Great Aunt Mabel saying, Telly's back! I also imagine that during this time some people even tried out that toffee-nosed BBC Two for the first time, just to see if there was anything else on worth watching, yeah, at least for a while. There was little sign of wobbling on the side of the workers during what is looked back upon as a fairly friendly dispute in comparison to the all-out warfare witnessed on the picket lines at Wapping or the gates of the collieries, games of football still being played by executives and any strikers, so union strikers that is, well, those still available to make-up teams who hadn't taken temporary jobs in the restaurants the executives ate at or, or off painting their houses for them. LWT apparently even used to let strikers picket indoors on rainy days so that they wouldn't get wet. In late October, the pay offer was increased to 17.5%, backdated to July, with promises of more jam tomorrow of 7.5% in January and then 15% the following July. Huzzah! Up the workers, power to the people, etc. However, as is often the case, there were caveats, a price to be paid, concessions to be made, working practices would have to change, presumably of the anyone who wants to can shift that wretched ladder variety, and such ladder shifting might be combined with lighting rigging as one person's job instead of two. Electronic news gathering was to be adopted so that the news could become all shiny and modern and not involve old news hounds with paper-based notepads and pencils lurking around in seedy bars trying to find out what the hell was going on. 
In the end, such things were accepted, albeit on a locally negotiated level, and in that agreement we find the roots of our modern 24-hour rolling news coverage, where the same facts and or opinions are bellowed at us by freezing reporters standing in front of nondescript buildings every 15 minutes or so until something else happens. Also, the unions at that time were very aware that the ITV franchise renewals were just around the corner, and as some very familiar logos were destined to vanish forever, they very much wanted no redundancy clauses to be in place so that the broadcast jobs cake could both be had and eaten. Anyway, at the end of the 10-week dispute, the strikers voted overwhelmingly to go back to work for what some sources claim was effectively a 45% pay rise. Well, you would, wouldn't you? And ironically, several of those who ended up becoming bigwigs in the television industry themselves were amongst the many manning the picket lines during that dispute, although some just went on holiday and others, with futures spent bean counting at the BBC, had made sure that their careers would be undamaged despite going out on strike. And then the strike was all over. The BBC's last brief period as being, once again, the nation's sole broadcaster, like it had been in the old days before 1955, was gone. And with new franchises about to be issued and shiny new channels coming along and extended broadcasting hours heaving into view over the horizon, things really would never be the same again. Noel Gordon, as Meg Mortimer, got to speak directly to camera and let the viewers know what had been going on at Crossroads while the viewers had been away. Not a lot, presumably. And Julie Goodyear and Peter Adamson, as uh, Bet Lynch and Len Fairclough, tripped across the old cobbles of a previous incarnation of Coronation Street to have a good old gossip over what had been going on up their end. So instead of killing off the soaps forever, they were back, and in one case at least, on its way to becoming the ratings behemoth that finally kicked Doctor Who to the curb within a decade and spawned the BBC voices to think, we'll have some of that, and with EastEnders, before half of that decade had passed. And as ever, there is always a cost not just in the revenue received by the ITV companies. Actors and journalists, especially those working at the TV Times, lost wages, and in many ways, these were the innocent bystanders who suffered most because of this dispute. Well, along with those of us awaiting the resolution of that sapphire and steel story set in the railway station and, and all those soap opera fans, and uh, you get the point. And, perhaps weirdly, the BBC suffered too, because, well, suddenly everyone became acutely aware that they broadcast a heck of a lot of repeats in the late summer and early autumn, something they apparently were completely oblivious to until someone took ITV away. You might even suggest that the BBC had pretty much thrown in the towel just as the champ was being counted out in the opposite corner, or something. And whatever changes were looming in the television industry were bound to affect them too. So, because the world unravelled so much under James Callaghan that it allowed Margaret Thatcher to rise to power, one of her missions was not to not allow it to unravel further on her watch. 1979 was, after all, the first year of her watch. And here she was, with blank TV screens and the strike by the printers at the Times newspaper group pushing that Murdoch chappie into the great whopping experiment. So the lady was not happy. At all. Mrs Thatcher basically wanted to reduce the power of the unions by outlawing secondary picketing, where pickets from one workplace could stand outside, threaten and intimidate, if you will, another workplace. A bringing an end to closed shops, a workplace where it was compulsory to join the union to do the job, and introducing mandatory secret ballots so that strikes had to be properly voted upon before anyone could call 
Everybody out! The unions tried again at Thames four years later, but found out that Thames could still get programmes broadcast, mainly because of the new single-operated cameras that the management could operate if necessary, and the fact that they could grab other shows from the other regions and transmit those instead. The TVAM strike, four years after that, was the last hurrah of the television unions managing to attempt to shut down a TV station, and with TV superstars, yeah, rat fans, crossing the picket lines, and managers stepping in, and then implying that the camera operators were basically unskilled labour and the television stations basically ran themselves, the unions basically lost. And so, especially with that 80s thing of private enterprise, meaning that there were a lot more small independent programme makers out there, the television unions never again had the strength they had enjoyed in the 60s and 70s, and because all these changes really mean that it simply couldn't happen now, 1979 was the last time ITV suffered a national blackout because of industrial action. And if it was, given the plethora of choice nowadays, would anyone even notice? Well, Warren, I didn't expect you to put out a dick at this point. Well, <laughs> gad zoops and stab me vitals. For you have shown us your dick turpin. Oh, I have shown you big dick. Yeah. We, we have dick turpin too, we just have not got around to watching it yet. The 6th of January 1979. Yeah, it's all about January it at the is, moment. Is, Episode excitement. 1, Swift Nick. Sir John Glutton, that's a good name. Yes. Yeah. Aided by his steward, Captain Spiker tries to evict Mrs Smith and her son from their inn, the Black Swan. Can Dick Turpin help them? Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, End of the episode, then, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> but created and written by Richard Carpenter. Yes. Mm-hmm. And directed by Charles Crichton, no less. Yes. yes. Gosh. And as you said, Warren, all done on film. All film. Mm. Yes. Now, I don't remember watching it. Don't you? No. So tell me about your memories of This is a Saturday this, night Warren. staple, this was. Yeah. Beans on Toast and Dick Turpin. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I remember when I, I got it solely because I remembered it as a child started watching the first episode and it came back like a flood right. but yeah warm memories of sitting down watching Dick Turpin yeah so Lisa what did you think of it historically then? Um, well yes I have to say historically it's probably not the closest to reality because Dick Turpin wasn't a noble outlaw as he's made up to be but in this, this isn't that Dick Turpin that, that's the thing no they pulled a nice thing in that the bloke that was hanged yeah is the bloke that took the name of Dick, Dick Turpin. Turpin. Yeah. Because you can see that Richard Carpenter set setting him up as a sort of Robin Hood figure. He is. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. You, you can see that you thing. Know, it, stealing it, from the rich for the poor. But he wasn't like that one no. bit. No. And no. You, you've got your sort of Sheriff of Nottingham. Yes. Character in Sir John Glatton. Yeah. Well, no, yes. Yeah, well, the Sheriff of Nottingham it, would be, would be um, Spiker and yeah. um, Sir John would be Prince John. Because... Dick Turpin is Richard O'Sullivan. Yes. A great fan of Richard's yes. work. He, yeah. He's always cheeky in the way he does He's also things. doing he Robin's Nest at this point yeah. as well. Yeah. So, so he's, he's really busy. He's busy. Mm. So John Glutton is Christopher Benjamin. Yeah. And Spiker is David Dacre. Yes. 
brilliant, isn't it? I was it? just looking at the sort of list of guest actors on here as mm. well. And you oh, get, there's loads. You get people like Donald Pleasance. Yeah. yeah. And Dinah Dawes with yeah. her um, assets on show. Indeed. Yes. Pa- Patrick McNee's in here. Yeah. 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 Playing Steed. Really? Yes. <laughs> Pretty much so. But yes, the one style acting, yes. <laughs> um, I think Windsor Davies is in one or two of them, actually. Okay, yeah. well, I can see what appears to be Joan Sims. Oh, yes, a, a Joan's pic- in it, picture yeah. Picture on, on the back yeah. there. So, you know, as Richard Carpenter series go, it, it's probably the, just the one I haven't watched, really. Okay. It, mm. it's, it's weird because, you know, I've seen Cat Weasel, I've mm-hmm. seen Ghosts of Motley Hall, I've seen, seen a bit of Robin of Sherwood, but, yes. but not this at all. Had you seen any? Um, I don't think I have. I I think I say I I we do have it. It's not actually that. This is the first time I've seen an episode. I Twig? remember the car the, the the cartoon strip, the comic strip that was in Looking. Looking, yes. More than anything else. Yeah. So I might have seen it, but I have no strong memories of it. So watching this for the first time, putting aside the historical inaccuracy, perhaps mm-hmm. that they're playing with history. How did you rate that? I I quite enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah, and and the adult lefty in me was enraged by the um, uh, <laughs> the landowning land gentry. gentry. So you know, Christopher Benjamin, much as I love him, got what he deserved. So, you know. It's just the name Glutton as well. Yes. It's a brilliantly sort of chosen name. I I like um, they've done their homework as to locations mm. and settings, and yeah, I said there's everything. There's nothing there that was anachronistic there no, was there no. and it looks dirty and, yes. and, and they haven't cleaned it up like a no. polished no, sorry. Uh, sort of fake not fake but um, you know some productions have a more emphasis on the acting less on the surrounding but mm-hmm. there's a lovely little bundle that yep. goes together there and as you said, having this first episode done by a film director as, as well. Really so Charles helps. Crichton yeah. is a very seasoned film director by the time he comes to do television, yeah. <laughs> but I guess that's like Wurzel Gummidge. Yeah, James you know, Hill. He's yeah, also shot, shot on film. So you can, James Hill's a Bond director. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so you can see that the, for what is, you know, a sort of tea-timey family audience mm. thing... Uh, the people you've got working on it are fairly sort of heavyweight Absolutely, people, aren't yeah. they? Mm-hmm. And LW2, are the, are they're in partnership with another firm, I can't remember yes. who it is. Gate Time. Yeah, are very much on the money. I think they are. They, they put a lot of investment in this because this is going to be... It's running almost opposite who, isn't it? What time have we got, have we got a transmission time? I can't tell you without going through all remember, my PDFs, sorry. I can't remember the time. I think it was who on one channel and you'd switch over and it's Dick Turpin on the other. Okay. I'm not sure. They might have slightly overlapped. Uh, but they're I, really going for the Saturday yeah. evening family yeah. audience, aren't they? But but Lisa, you, you wanted to say about... Um, yes. Well, there's... The real Dick Turpin. The real briefly. Dick Turpin, who was was hanged in York. We've seen his a reproduction of his cell when we went to the York oh, Castle we did, Museum. Oh, yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. And he was caught because, and he wasn't a very nice man because he'd 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 been with a gang of other thieves and he'd basically left them to hang and sort of run away. And he was caught because he sent a letter, I think, to his mother or to somebody. And the postman that delivered the letter was the man that taught him to write. Good grief. And he recognised the hand and could tell him, even though he didn't obviously sign it, yeah. Dick Turpin, he recognised the hand and went, hang on a minute, that's Dick Turpin's writing. Because Horrible Histories have done a very good... A great song. Adam yeah. Adamant Ad- spoof. Not Adam Adamant. 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 Not, not Adam Adamant. Adamant. <laughs> I was going to say, Adam <laughs> Adamant say. didn't do many pop songs, no. did he? Adamant. Yes. Yeah, so basically, Prince Charming is Dick Turpin. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And it's fabulous. We'll have to show you that one. We will. It's yeah. really rather good. Yes. And that, I mean, it, 
I wouldn't say it's a spoof as such. It's not a black fingernail, is it? No. <laughs> well, that's black fingernail, scarlet pimpernel, anyway. Is it really? Yes. 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 Marvellous. Big dick is carry on dick. Big dick is carry on dick. That's right, yeah. But have you actually watched any more of these? Yes, I have. I've watched some of the later ones as well. Because there seems to be a theme in the last series. Yes, there is. Is that to do with the American War of Independence or something? There is a a running theme on that, yes. Oh, because it's called Dick Turpin's Greatest Adventure, and it seems yeah, because it's it's got just got episode yeah, numbers. I'm episode not sure what, there are fifty one to episodes. five. I, I think they're fifty minutes. A while since I've watched them. For episode fair. four from the sixth of June, nineteen eighty one, it says viewers will notice a drop in quality for several minutes during episode four. While the best available materials have been used to source this DVD, circumstances necessitated the use of a lower quality recording for it, part of this episode. Because it doesn't mm. exist in its entirety. Oh, right. Okay. You looked that up, did you? Yes. Uh, <laughs> good man. So what happened to it then? Uh, no, um, I'm wondering... Did the tape mangle up I'm or something? I'm wondering whether it's water damaged or it's damaged... Because it the... it's going to be on a film recording isn't it a film reel yeah so it's either going to be age damage yeah that's the it didn't specify it just said if if anybody anybody knows give us some more details i'm sure sure somebody will know i'm sure they will but it's always good to have it something that isn't quite 100 percent. well that's the thing you you you, as you always say to me you appreciate these things more if you're having to go to slightly dodgy copies every (laughs) every now and then because yeah you know, 1979 is a long time ago now. Mm-hmm. Yes, although it doesn't seem to us in our heads, though, does it? No. And there is still a fair amount of material from 1979 for which no recordings yeah. exist. So, Which seems ridiculous. I know it sounds daft, yeah. but, you know, yeah. there is there is stuff that we've watched mm-hmm. during our lifetime that doesn't exist anymore. Which is we yeah. are we're walking historical. So work. if you could just plug your head into my mind probe, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll suck out a few... Uh, Missing episodes of things. <laughs> 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 Who are misses? But yeah. Saturday night was definitely a night for Dick. Yeah, oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, that was a thank you for showing that to us, Warren. Yes, yeah, pleasure. And we will have to dig out a copy and watch some more. Yeah. yeah. I wonder what other surprises you have in store for us. Oh, mm. We shall sack. find out. <laughs> bye bye. Bye. Why does it always have to end with a bum? Are you seriously asking why a dick has got to end in a bum? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> That'll make Warren spit his tea out. Yes. Thank you very much to Martin. Yes. For his lovely piece. Martin yes. will return later. Yes. Warren will also return later. He will, yes. But yes. in sort of answer to the question about where does Dick Turpin fit into the schedule. Yes. And I said I've got to go through my PDFs. Yes. But I've gone through my PDFs okay. and I found my PDF. Good. Stop saying PDF. For uh, the 6th of January, 1979. Okay. And Dick Turpin got a lovely cover on the it did. TV it's, Times, it's a, didn't it? It's he? a beautiful cover with Richard O'Brien and a horse and a big weapon. Richard who? Richard O'Brien. Richard <laughs> <laughs> Close, but no cigar. Richard O'Sullivan. That's the one. But there are actually two dicks visible on there ITV yes. uh, this day. As at mm-hmm. 5.15, mm-hmm. you had Dick Barton's special agent mm-hmm. from Southern Television. Yes. Which I've just had a look at. Yes. And I think we ought to get. I think we do. Then Mork and Mindy at 5.30. The Incredible Hulk. It's only on for a quarter of an hour. At six. Yeah, Dick, yeah, Dick Barton is only 15 minutes. Oh, yeah. okay. So The Incredible Hulk at six. I always hate The Incredible Hulk. Well, all right. It's that sad music yeah. at the end, isn't Paul it? Paul used to be scared of it. So, Did yeah. he? Oh, yeah. okay. 
Seven o'clock celebrity squares. Mm. Bob Monkhouse with Frank Carson, Barry Cryer, Sasha Distel, Diana Dawes, Jenny Hanley, Don McLean, Francoise Pascal, Willie Rushton, Percy Thrower, and the voice of Lance Percival. It's always Willie Rushton, though, isn't it? Yeah. I think Willie Rushton just lived in the studio. In the middle. Yeah. <laughs> Waving. Yes. Seven thirty is Dick Turpin. Okay. So yeah. Real, real, prime time. Real prime time. Prime time on a Sunday. And the feature film at eight was Zeppelin. Mm. You rolled your eyes at that. I did. Why? Yeah. Have you seen that before? Um, I think I might have seen it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I just I never get the whole putting a, like a film on. Yeah, right. Somebody puts a, a TV Times thing up the other day for a se- when the series of Upstairs Downstairs came back. Yeah. And it didn't. It wasn't on till nine fifty. Okay. Which seems really late. But they put a film on early in the night. So why not put like Upstairs Downstairs on when the film was meant to be on and put the film on when Upstairs Downstairs was meant to be on? But anyway. Right now. Yes. We've got Paul and Nick and Joe. Yes. All together. Mm-hmm who are going to look at season 17 of Doctor Who. Or particularly the first two series well, of season 17. Well, we were going to look at season 17. Yes. But they got so overexcited... They did. ...that the actual running time mm-hmm. um, is the equivalent of about two episodes around the archive. Yes. So I've, I, I've got my scissors out... Yes. ...and hacked it, hacked it, it down. down. And mm-hmm. we're going to do Destiny of the Daleks and mm-hmm. City of Death. Yes. Because those were the two that were opposite the, the, strike. the strike. So mm-hmm. Destiny of the Daleks will be on first and yep. City of Death we'll a bit later. I was basically there in sort of coming up to September 79 on a high. I grew more and more and more and more. And I think 17 was a very personal significant. But autumn 79 was a was a nice one because there was a lot of good TV. During, I think, November time, I met you for the first time. Indeed, yes. Um, my first memory of Andrew Candish, who Andrew and Lisa will remember from RPS and the films, is uh, perhaps in his Doctor Who scarf. I can't remember. But he would... <laughs> yes. Um, he was with a group of people and he turned to them and said, we haven't got much time, the Nymons are coming. <laughs> and uh, mm. um, I remember that trailer. I remember there was another one which featured Creature from the Pit with, say, <laughs> the Lady Adrasto will want to question you. And I, I thought, right, so when is this coming up? Paul! <laughs> Destiny of the Daleks. It's pretty much, I always say it's the first Doctor Who story I remember. I think I probably saw the repeat as well, which is why it's sort of fixed in my head. Um... Better than I don't have the same quality of memories for uh, the whole of the series, so or the whole of the season. But yeah, I I liked Destiny at the time, and I still like it to this day. I think there's a lot of really eerie bits in it that I still like. When Mamana is walking through the the city um, with all the shiny walls and everything, mm-hmm. and and I'm, I I could watch it today, and I probably still got the same feeling where I'm thinking. It's it kind of is an the electric moment. Although I just love the fact that you've got this black glass wall <laughs> for no other reason for the Daleks to match <laughs> it as a yes. cliffhanger. Yes, but it's just so lovely. It is a lovely moment, um, and so terrifying. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it sort of keeps the pace well throughout the whole story. And if I was going to sit down and choose between watching Genesis or Destiny, I'd always choose Destiny before Genesis, partly because it's two episodes shorter. But um, <laughs> but I I don't see any. I don't. I I probably I probably prefer Destiny. Over Genesis, to be honest, 
I think you know that of me anyway. Oh, yeah. Joe, Destiny of the Daleks. Yeah, I mean, even as a kid, I kind of thought Marvel's Regeneration was a bit lame. It's very silly. <laughs> it's a sort of silliness that worked in later Douglas Adams, but it did. Uh, yeah. Uh, but I have to say, uh, that tall one that comes out, I didn't actually think she was real when I first really, yeah. watched it. I think they're just a dummy they <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, when she finally appeared, actually the costume she had was very good, even though she keeps stripping off the scarf. But um, to its credit, it throws her right in the action, and uh, that works quite well. At the time, as a kid, I enjoyed Death to the Dark. When I review it, you can't help but notice that um, uh, what's his face is clearly Death because Tom Blake keeps pointing. Yes, uh, Ali. All whenever through. we watch that story, Ali, because yeah. she does sign language, Ali, and she, ah, yeah. she actually. Think that is actually really clever of Tom, kind of to visually kind of cue him. Yes, I'm very bad at the editor and the director to not edit those bits out. So it's it's bloody obvious and points. You know, Tom Baker's to look over there. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 not beast because it does feel like a sort of rest bit of very lackluster Dalek story. I mean, Terminator has done something quite different. Oh, I say Terminator. Robert Holmes did something quite different with Genesis the Daleks. Um, uh, it just seems to be a revert to form of a little bit controversial, but yeah, it does feel a bit like we've been here before. I, I except Dev Ross is in it. Maybe with Genesis, I think Bob sort of concentrated on the character of Davros, mm. whereas with I, I always felt with all of Williams and also later on with Cartmel, they looked a bit awkward bringing old stuff back. Yeah, um, it, it was they're, they're they're very much eras that like to be move on and do something brand new but um i have to say though going back to romana i do think that lala ward is probably one of my favorite baker companions and i have to say every time i see that coat of that wonderful pink coat with the, the scar- white scarf white scarf i actually feel a nice warm feeling that costume there's something very warm and friendly and smart about it and she's she, um, all the companions i think she had the best wardrobe as it were uh, um, yes yeah i have thought this that actually in terms of now in 2019 yeah, yeah. Uh, with jodie whittaker's doctor actually she probably should have taken a leaf out of the book of lala wards absolutely uh, in terms of costumes because jo- jodie looked a lot better in peter capaldi's yes. coat i kept thinking Rock that coat. a female time or perhaps she'd dress like uh, lala ward did in state of decay yeah and I, I, I like the mobellans um and of course the commander dave played by peter straker was um a great good friend of freddie mercury but again uh, that's perhaps the problem with Evans is the very 70s I, very disco oh yeah but I do like the Evans they give the story a, a visual identity yeah but and their ship is nicely designed mm. I, I really like that that's, that's, that's a visual quite a good effect, effect. Yeah, that's, on that's the not ship is great it's interesting to look very disco at a time that was perhaps a bit more punk yeah but no, no, that's a very clever that way yeah. it's a good visual effect as well if anyone's phoning in it, in it is Terry Nation yeah although uh, to be although, fit, uh, I actually say Ken Greaves is direction is really rather good on it, it it's it's got a lot yeah. of energy to it um, yeah it's just it, it feels the script needed a little bit more work but especially as a season one of my favorite quarries yes yes and of course it, it's in. been used in the blake seven episode games as well <sighs> and of course i can't help but mention the design point of view the ropier set of daleks for a long time uh, I, they are quite funny though i mean there's the <laughs> one that goes hiccup 
yeah, completely yeah. opens oh. up uh, in part three. Uh, um, I, I just, it's, it's. I, I agree with Paul though. It's got some. I agree with you that it, yeah, Terry, we've seen it before. We've and seen he, it before. He was just about to zoom off to America at the time. It has I got. Think, I like the premise. is very interesting again yeah. about the Scaro and rediscovering Devros. So that's a very interesting premise. It's just sadly the rest of the story doesn't necessarily follow through on the initial promise. I have to say that. With Davros, aesthetically, I think it was quite nice. And at the time, I thought, "Ooh, Davros!" Yeah. Because I remembered him from watching him watching Genesis first time round, and the thrill of as a ten-year-old, the thrill of actually seeing, "Ooh, he's coming back!" Yeah, and I remember yeah. him. So I, 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 and the the cliffhanger where he get, comes to life mm. is very nice. Every single cliffhanger of Destiny, I think, mm. is really good. And Cliffhangers, it does extremely well. Yeah, sometimes um, you just want that sort of story. And, of course, it was getting technical. Here. It was actually the first one, the first story to use Steadicam, which yes. was brand, brand new at the time. And mm. Ken Greaves, a wonderful grizzled Scotsman on the... On the it has got a nice pace to it, but I, I would say it hasn't quite got enough meat on the bone. No. Look, compared to some uh, of the other stories around that uh, time. Tom picking up a piece of slow and saying, oh, it's, it's an original it's a, yeah. That is quite No, poor. that's a bit of toy yeah. thing that was available at the time. Yes, it's, <laughs> you know? it doesn't quite work. Yeah. But I, I, little trivia things here. The first time I heard of Destiny of the Daleks, it was shortly before it transmission. They had a Blue Peter thing on about, I think it might have been about the Daleks, and they said, and if you're a fan, you'll be delighted to hear that they're back in a new story, Destiny of the Daleks. Mm. Uh, so the title stuck in my mind. And I actually had a dream that the Target book was out before <laughs> before the uh, the show, and you could tell I'm a Jeff Cummings fan, because um, it, it had the, in the dream, it was the like purple star scape <laughs> of the then brand new cover to Three Doctors. Yeah. With a picture of Tom from Hour of Fang Rock in the ah, centre. Yeah. Both of which were Jeff Cummings' pictures. So, um, but yeah, I, I, that was that was going to be Destiny of the Daleks, and of course it did come out early, but not, not before yes. the end of the. Daleks don't Yeah. First um, Andrew Skeletor drawing. Yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, I have a bit at home. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, I like I like the target books. The the, the other funny bit is we're, we're also in the trailer when the doc, Tom says, "If you're supposed to be the superior race of the universe, why did you try coming after us?" And when he goes bye bye uh, like a Dalek, I actually did think that was the Dalek saying bye bye. Yeah. You know, like, bye bye. Uh, <laughs> okay, you know, at ten you don't question these things. But, yeah, but um, it is a moment of silliness. Sort of props belongs deaf to the Daleks. Yeah, I mean it's. I I think the Mo Verlands definitely are one of the highlights mm. of the. But the, the it's, I think it's slightly lacking in characters as well. You've yeah. got Tyson and you've got the, the, the David Yip's character and the and, Chinese and detective, a, the Chinese detective, yes. and the manager of your one of your, in one of your favourite armchair thrillers. Yeah. Well, uh, but then you're not necessarily supposed to realise that the Mavellans are bad, as bad as the Daleks almost yeah. at the start. So you, I mean, it might be more obvious as an adult, but as a child, I, did, I, was, yeah. I wasn't. I was. I wasn't. No, well, I, I, I did guess. No. Are, can't trust these people. Mm. I actually think that the Mavellans work a lot better as as, as Terry Nation uh, rivals to the Daleks. I think they they actually work a lot better than the Mechanoids. Uh, in the chase because the Mechanoids are just trying to be Daleks, mm-hmm. yes. whereas the Mavellans bring something new to the table. I do like those old sets as well. I like the idea of going back. I mean, you're probably nowhere near deep enough for, for you know, because the bunker was supposed to be in I mean, if you think about the logistics, you know, Davros would have fallen to pieces years ago. 
But yes, Tom and Lala really do. Yes, that spark the, on the yeah, companion doctor thing works very well in that story. It's, um, yeah, it's it's because of a missed opportunity, I think, a bit the way you look at it. Given the script, I feel Tom kind of does push it along a bit, you know, yes. to give it some energy. And um, oh, it's, he's it's, well up for it. Yeah, he's working well with a deaf actor. Yeah, clearly, he's really helping the blind. And of course, dear old Tim Barlow's gone on. He did um, the tall guy. He's, he's blind man in, in Tall Guy. He goes, take my advice. He says to Jeff Goldblum, take my advice, go blind. Everyone <laughs> I made love to has been Marlene <laughs> or something like, something like that. I, I, yes, he's he, good, and he was in Hot Fuzz as well. So he's still going strong. And he retains, he got some of his hearing back as well. Ah. But yeah, and I like the old paper wrap stone yeah. business. That's that's quite nice. Yes. Although yeah. as Keith once said to me, you can't imagine it happening in in Genesis, you know. Paper wrap stone. Because Death was having shot. Yeah. <laughs> um, it didn't quite have the danger of, de- of Genesis, but it's watchable stuff. Uh, one thing, because I just um, tape, I was taping them, although I wasn't. I think I taped the repeat, but didn't tape the the actual transmission. Um, but he, um, I remember because my mum was aware of me taping them, and, and she said after episode one, she said, "I don't think that would have made a good audio because there wasn't hardly any, you know there, there wasn't much dialogue." Yes. Um, also. One thing with Destiny, Dudley is used very, very sparingly. Who's not there at all in part four. Mm. I do think that's a shame. Because mm. yes. you could have papered over some cracks. Yes, yeah, no, I do think with Destiny Dark is a missed opportunity. Mm. Probably needed a lot of uh, aggressive script editing, <laughs> which Press Ducky Adams wasn't quite up to. I don't think he was interested enough in the Daleks. No. He, he he was kind of hence that there's there's I read a review once where it mentions that bit where he's talking to Davros for the first time and he says well I better fill you in on what's happening since you've been dozing and he goes Beetlejuice won the cover and Davros interrupts him mm. and somebody wrote the Davros and Terry Nation ignore the ignore <laughs> yes. him and get on with the story <laughs> one final thing that springs to mind is that odd scene in part three where they bring in the prisoners and exterminate them one by one until the Doctor agrees he, he, he's a bit of a bastard in that isn't he because he, 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 he lets two of them be shot before yes, he lets them yes. oh alright <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. that's true. Yes, and also um, the the pain thresholds of uh, each person that gets exterminated seems to be completely variable. Because mm. you you got mm. yes in they all go black and white. What more do you want? We with got um, Ronson in Genesis and Archer in in Resurrection of the Daleks. Yeah, they all thrash about and you know chew the furniture and, and these you know it's a shot and it's like oh am I done yet oh nice cosy place to sit down that's <laughs> right yes they're like seven and fall over and slow boat yeah, yeah. Uh, especially in the gown <laughs> oh right right on cue but uh, no I mean it's, 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 it is quite fun Thank you very much, boys. Yes, thank you, boys. Yes. So, Nick, Joe and Paul will be back yes. in a while. Mm-hmm. Next up, mm. Warren joins us on the sofa to look at yes. the legend of King Arthur. He does. And after that, Martin returns to look at... Shoestring.
Welcome back to the sofa, Warren. Yes. Oh, thank you very much. Hello thank again, you, Warren. Letting me being had on the sofa. And today we've shown you two episodes yes. of yeah. The Legend of King Arthur mm-hmm. yes. from 1979. Yes. This is uh, October the 7th, mm-hmm. which was a Sunday. Yes, and it's a BBC series. It's a BBC right. serial mm-hmm. uh, broadcast at six o'clock. Yes. And uh, adapted by Andrew Davies. Mm-hmm. Music by Dudley Simpson. Mm-hmm. Producer Ken Riddington. Yeah. Director Rodney Bennett. Mm-hmm. Although on the uh, DVD packaging, for some reason, it says directed by Andrew Morgan. So somebody's <laughs> yeah. got confused. Somebody's got confused. But uh, starring Andrew Burt mm-hmm. and Maureen O'Brien. Though. Yes. Which is why we had to watch episodes one and two because she's yeah. not in episode one. Yeah. She's rather good, isn't she? She is. Yeah. But, but yes. Yeah, <laughs> so what, what do we think of this then? Because yeah. I have no memory of seeing it and mm. I, I honestly don't think I've seen it until today so what mm. about you I, I don't think I've seen it either no I think I remember the sword in the opening titles that is it yeah mm. that is literally it yeah because we, we, we start with uh, the sword sort of rotating yes. when I first saw it I thought there was really bad tram line scratches <laughs> on the film but it was actually the sword yeah but I said to you this is pitched really interesting Mm because this is the sunday classics slot Mm. yes and i think when people say sunday classics they immediately think of dickens adaptations don't they and people tend to forget that there was a fair bit of fantasy stuff Mm -hmm. Um, but this is almost pitched somewhere between sort of the bbc shakespeare production of the the time yeah and jack and ori playhouse as, as, as i said well i was saying to lisa i think it's far too rich to be uh, a Saturday, Sunday classic, mm. I think it's got a bit more oomph than your, your average Sunday classic. Mm-hmm. It, I think it does have the problem that we do know Monty Python and the Holy Grail yes. and, and yeah. things like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. So inevitably, you were starting to quote scenes like that. But the the way they've done it with absolute conviction, total mm-hmm. conviction, and historical accuracy, yeah, as well, because it's um, according to the wikipedia entry it's sort of meant to be eighth century yeah so and it's yeah i mean i because i said to you we you know the opening theme opening and closing themes are done by dudley simpson mm. but it's the most un dudley simpson yeah. music mm. i've ever heard him do but the opening music especially does sound as though it's from the time it doesn't does it? it's very sort of accurate there's no concession to making a sort of jaunty theme tune no. or anything no. like that no. it's, it's much more mood music isn't mm-hmm. it and frankly mm-hmm. I wouldn't have recognised any of this as, as Dudley. No. Because no. no. you, you hear him working on other shows and you immediately go, oh, that's Dudley Simpson, isn't mm. it? But this time, Definitely it, it, not his it, was, style, it wasn't it? No. what you might call typical Dudley. No. So that, mm. that was interesting. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, the first episode is very much the setup, isn't it? Yes. So we've got Patsy Kensit. Yes, oh, yes. as the young Morgan Le Fay. And I have to say, she's damn good, isn't she? Is. I have to say, they she say is. never work with children and animals. She's yeah. absolutely cracking, isn't she? she? Is. Yeah. So yeah. if you just want to explain what yeah. what the what the setup of this first well, episode this, is, this first episode is mostly well, it's partly concerning Uther Pendragon, hmm. who is Arthur's father. And if anybody's seen the more recent series of Merlin, Uther's in it quite a lot. Yeah. Um, but it's how, because obviously Uther steals another man's wife yeah. because he he wants to marry her. And Morgan Le Fay is the child of, of his wife and this, this 
as a person so she wants revenge on Uther and she wants revenge on Arthur and you can totally understand that it makes her a sort of sympathetic character but in another way obviously you're rooting for King Arthur because yeah. Because you want, you the know. legend that goes with Arthur, yes. isn't it? Yeah, so the, the first episode is basically setting up that story. Half of it is um, before Arthur's bo- Arthur is born, and the other half is when he grows up and he goes off to to the wherever it is and becomes king. But and he's not even turned into Andrew Burt at this point. Yeah, but Merlin turns up. Yes. And what what's the gap between episodes one and two, do you reckon? I don't know, because obviously it's a different... Because... The actor playing Arthur is it's like a younger version, and then in episode two, it's Andrew Burt. Yeah, it's got to be a good ten years, really. I would have thought. Fifteen years. Yeah. Yeah. Said, yeah, said more than that. that. Yeah, yeah. 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 But so. I, I, as I was saying, I, I love Merlin's uh, perpetuating flowing beard. Yes, <laughs> it's just timeless and endless, yeah. isn't it? If I had the time, I'd end up with one. Right right right. Yeah. Yeah. And the actor playing Merlin. This is a very similar part to he's in. Um, this is Robert Edison. Robert Edison. He's in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and he's right. one, he's the Templar Knight in in the. Oh, um, knew that's I couldn't. In the Temple, yes, yeah. yes, and it's very yes. similarly played with Absolutely. the beard. Absolutely, that's now, interesting. Yes. I wonder if there's some sort of connection. I yeah. wonder if somebody said, "Oh, he'd be good for that part because he was." It's Merlin. a very small part. Yeah. But you're right. But, it is a. It's quite a similar sort of yeah. otherworldly part, I isn't knew, it? Knew I couldn't place him. Couldn't place him. So, yeah, and yeah. I always, when I watch that, I always think, where have I seen him from? So yeah. I'm now wondering if I did see this series, and that's where I recognise him from. Because I don't think because I, I don't think I've seen him in anything else. Because it's only just when was it out on DVD? Not long ago. Not, not too it? long ago. Let's have a look on the back. See mm. what it says. Because um, it's, it's a simply media job. Copyright 2016. So, so three only, years ago. It's only recent. Mm. And mm. Merlin is about 300 in this, he yes. says, mm. which is interesting. Because yeah. the whole thing about the sort of the Arthur universe, isn't it? it I, I never can quite get a handle on what Merlin's powers are meant to be from mm. sort of, you know, depiction to depiction. Because I always said to you that the thing about the sort of BBC Mer- the Merlin, the recent one, mm. that disappointed me that they were going for a young Merlin. Yes. Yeah. And I always think yeah. Merlin's much more interesting when he's old. Mm. So, yeah. but yeah, the, you know, he, he clearly doesn't age between episodes one and two, <laughs> no, whereas no. everybody else does. No. So. Just, but he wouldn't. If he's 300 years old, there's a, there's a certain a point you're going to stop. Yeah. 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 So. But yeah, you, you're interested in seeing the rest of this now. Yes, I yeah. am. Yes, yeah, yeah, I am. And and I think I think it sort of comes across. Cause I don't think it punches above its weight at all. In fact, I think it it opens up so many possibilities. And and some of the actors that I've watched on the two episodes there, I've only ever seen them in say lame seventies dramas and things. Yeah. And here they are. It's as if they walk onto a completely different plane, and the quality they are giving, even for the Sunday afternoon classic, is amazing. I do, mm. I do like the way they totally throw away the sword in the stone scene. Though. Yes. Whereas yeah. in some sort of adaptations, it's the big sort of dramatic thing. Yeah. Mm. Whereas in this, he just wanders in, pulls it out, and pulls it out, and goes, "What's this then?" Yes. yes. Yeah. Is this sword all right for you? Because <laughs> yeah. he's just looking. And for everybody a sword, like kneels on the ground. What are yeah. you doing on the ground? Yeah. Put the sword back. <laughs> yeah. So as if he's broken it, isn't he? Yeah. It's just such a wonderful matter of factness about yeah. it. Yeah. And I, 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 I sort of laughed and said to you that 
Um, oh, it's all done with magnets, isn't yes. it? You know, because it, it's one of those things that if if I was to write a sort of King Arthur thing, th those sort of scenes are the things I'd need to understand in my head how the physics of it works. Yeah, because it's never explained. No, that's the thing that you know. You you watch other adaptations, mm. and you know, even even Monty Python, the Holy Grail. You, you've got these scenes that you expect to be in them. Yeah. But this is already totally wrong-footed me. Yeah. Mm. So that there's things that you recognise are there, oh, yeah. but they're, they're given a completely different spin. And yeah. I, I like that. I like that freedom to adapt the legend yes. because, yeah. you know, it's it's not historical no, truth and, or anything and like piece, that. You're expecting to be a set piece just isn't. It's not. Yeah. It's just, it's just it's background, it. isn't yeah. it? So I, I think I, I think it's fun. And I do like the fact that you obviously in episode two you get um, Lancelot introduced yeah. and Guinevere, and it's there's lots of little looks between them. So they're sowing the seeds now of oh, of yeah. what's to come. And if the kids at home won't really realise, but the parents will be sort of nudging each other and going, "Oh look, look," you know, because it's I think it's sort of based on um, on Mort de Arthur. Yeah. Oh, which I don't know at all. Which no. is Mallory, isn't it? Yeah. So, and of that story. So, but yeah. But yeah, I haven't actually seen uh, much Maureen O'Brien stuff beyond Vicky and a no. few episodes of Casualty. No. And it's surprising how much she she has done. I think. Yes. I never saw her in Casualty. This is literally the only other thing I've ever seen her in. Yeah, but you said she's still recognisable oh, as, as the Vicky, yeah, isn't, isn't she? Because it's. It's about fourteen years 13 on. Thirteen years, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Well, yeah, she leaves. She leaves years. in sixty-five. She still has yeah. the angelic face. Yeah. 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 So, so I'm really looking forward to seeing where she's going to go with this part because yes. I th I think it's something she's probably going to get her teeth into because yeah. yeah. even for the cliffhanger to part two, she yes. was already starting to do the real sort of. You know, yeah. sort of super villain stuff, yes. wasn't she? Lots, she wasn't... lots of eyes and teeth. Yeah. Yes, but it wasn't mm. over the top, was it? Yeah. It was no. very, very um contained mm -hmm. and it was quite sinister and yeah. you're thinking this is not going to be good but mm. yeah a, a pretty solid production all around yeah. i thought yeah. generally yeah, and it's it's more historical than i thought it was going to be it's described as a fantasy i would describe it as a historical yeah. drama yeah myself. I, no i go with that because there's only a little bit of fantasy in there well yeah. the fantasy i think was being added if they'd have given us to a, a separate track we'd have been doing python quotes yeah, yeah. that's the thing <laughs> but yeah, yeah. There you are. Nice, mm. nice solid job, I thought. Yes, mm, absolutely. Right. And now we've just got one more thing to do. Yes, right. And that'll be your, your, your sort of potpourri of, of bits and bobs. Yes. For this episode. So yes. see you in a bit. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.
Sometimes a popular television series is hard to like. Everybody else is going on and on about just how great it is, and you sit there feeling perplexed because it does nothing whatsoever for you, and you begin to wonder whether there's something wrong with you because you're so far off track with what the rest of the world seems to find quite enjoyable. Game of Thrones did nothing for me, and I've never felt the need to watch Call the Midwife, Line of Duty, Happy Valley, or Strictly Come Dancing, despite the viewers being drawn to all of these like bees to honey. Several of those strike me as looking too bloody miserable or too bloody family whamly for me to ever want to see them, but if they make other people happy, then so be it. I'll just slip another DVD into the machine and leave them to get on with it, whilst I wallow around with some telly from a different era and try to fathom just what it might have been that made these shows the unmissable viewing of their times. Which brings us to Shoestring, a fondly remembered detective show starring Trevor Eve, found lurking at the back end of the 1970s and the dawn of the 1980s, a series which staggered through 21 episodes across two years before vanishing forever and being replaced with Bergerac for the remainder of the 1980s. It's a little bit of a Marmitey series, to be honest. Some people really, really liked Shoestring, but but some people never really took to it. And it's it's easy to see why it is, after all, based around local radio and gives it a Beeb-related self-importance that few of us might recognise. It does also come across as being a tiny bit smug from time to time, but perhaps because it was 1979 and the series launched during the ITV strike so that there were literally no other channels to watch apart from BBC Two and it faced little to no competition, at least at first, Shoestring became very popular indeed. For reasons outlined in the first episode, down on his look, private investigator, Eddie Shoestring ends up becoming the private ear for Radio West, and this becomes the trigger point for the various stories which result from listeners ringing in and having him look into their crime-related problems. So far, so snoopy, and possibly so bloody irritating. But then, with a backstory of mental health issues, a bright red, or if you prefer orange, Mark III Cortina Estate, and some parts of Bristol that I have a burning nostalgia for, well, really, What's not to like? Well, I suppose that all depends upon how much you like Shouting Trevor or not. To be fair, the Shouting Trevor of Waking the Dead is very much suppressed throughout much of the run of Shoestring, although it does surface from, surface from time to time until everyone remembers that he's supposed to put a lid on his anger because of his therapy. And because I was very influenced by things on the telly around that era, due to being that sort of age back then, I do think that perhaps subconsciously I modelled my look, minus the moustache, I'm not insane, on shoestring as I staggered through my college years. Kicking off on September the 30th in 1979, when there was nothing much on ITV due to the strike, the opening episode is called Private Ear, and is very much the origin story for a series which would end its original two series just before Christmas the following year, with Eddie slumping down on a sofa, having just saved Christmas in a Christmas-themed episode a mere 15 months later. And because Shoestring is based around a radio station, let's go through the first episode as a top 20 chart rundown! In at number 20 are the opening credits created by Name to Conjure with Sid Sutton in which once the Radio West fanfare has trilled, a sombre bluesy number plays as Eddie mooches around a chilly looking Bristol having been transmogrified by the power of radio and split screenery so we get to see a tiny glimpse of the inner workings of the magical world of radio as he dozes on park benches, blows on his chilly hands and becomes fascinated by pillar boxes and has a snack as new high-tech dot 
Matrix signs tell the people of Bristol just how chilly it is. Alright, at 19 is flipping Stacey Dawning, the former child star horsebother playing How Could We Forget Sarah Marshall. She's picked up by a red Morris Marina taxi at the Bel Air Sauna, the kind of backstreet dive frequented by old gentlemen. Not off. Sarah wears dark glasses as she leaves and goes home, far too tired to chat to Laurie the taxi driver, played by Patrick Durkin, as rather surprisingly, he listens to the local radio station, Radio West, as it seems does absolutely every other person in the series, despite that bloody jingle and the essential dreariness of DJ David Kahn's radio show. Hang on, that voice is familiar. It's only William Bloody Russell. With him in the pilot, this thing's bound to run for 50 years, okay? Sarah Marshall, you won't have forgotten, runs a bath whilst listening to David droning on about old soldiers and the like. The crazy young thing that she is, then, despite being very tired, know what I mean, gets called back to work for a super important special job, which means she heads out in a ghastly pink coat and we get a close-up of her amazingly shocked eyes. Alright? In at 18 is I Don't Wanna Be Like David Kahn. In the studios of Radio West, David Kahn broadcasting his late-night nonsense to the West Country as Don Satchley. Michael Medwin arrives to do his boss of the radio station shtick, which does at least lead to the unexpected sight of that lovely Mr. Chesterton from Doctor Who flicking the V's straight down the camera lens. At home, Sarah Marshall, remember her, tries to make an angry phone call, then runs through the street to Radio West, where we meet Liz Crowther's lovely but never-at-home receptionist, who takes Sarah's name, whatever that might be, and tries to get David Kahn to come out and talk to her. And when he refuses to do so, she heads outside singing the current gritty drama hit of the day, Bar Stewards. At 17, it's Sad Sarah. This is the last we see of the unforgettable Sarah Marshall, as she nicks a white Rolls Royce from the radio station's car park, which arch-narcissist David Kahn has permanently tuned to his own show, apparently. And as David drones on with marriage guidance advice and sniffs at his signature yellow rose, Sarah Marshall, who's that, knocks back the booze and pills and drives to the beach, freeze-framing on a close-up once she screamed the last line of that Bar Steward song, Bar Steward all of them. A catchy little ditty, right? And her body lies on the beach next to the Rolls Royce of David Kahn, for it is his, the following morning. At 16, Eddie goes to work, part one. Eddie Shoestring starts his latest working day by coming downstairs and swiping the morning paper from under the very letterbox of his landlady, prosecuting attorney Erica Bayliss, as played with a will-they-won't-they, spoiler alert, they will, charm by Doran Godwin. Their domestic arrangements seem very fluid as they discuss his prospects, or lack of them, his lack of petrol, office, and clients. There's then a strange little interlude as he goes out, intercepts the and a jump cut from him posting the letters through the door himself and the toast popping up from the toaster in their kitchen and we see that the sad story of the fate of Sarah Marshall, remember her, has made the front page. In at 15, it's a sad day at the morgue, and there's the sad interlude of the sad parents having to make a sad visit to the sad mortuary to identify a sad little body of their sad little girl, and we hear the sad tale of a sad teenage runaway. Kenneth Gilbert and Sally Sanders play the sad Nolans, these sad parents of sad Sarah Marshall, who was once, presumably, one of the sad Nolans. 
But then we return to 16 and Eddie goes to work, part two, as in a bizarre edit. Having gone out earlier, Eddie is now back in the kitchen with the radio on, shaving over the sink and quirkily choosing to wear his pyjama jacket as a shirt whilst discussing Erica's imminent appearance on Radio West, which establishes a connection which might prove jolly handy in driving the plot along and bringing disparate worlds together. All right, back at 15, sad day at the morgue. Side two, the inquest into the death of Sarah Marshall, whoever she was, opens and is adjourned and we hear this on the radio news bulletin as Sonia is wrangling her typewriter in the lobby of Radio West and because Sonia is brilliant, a trait which goes criminally unnoticed throughout, that name seems awfully familiar to her from a certain late night encounter in that very reception not so very long ago. At 14, it's Dodgy David. Arriving at the radio station, Erica parks her car next to that oh so familiar white Rolls Royce and is soon on air with an unnamed presenter, Stuart Bevan, and all of the radio business about producers and so on seems a little bit like one of those writer's research sketches that Mitchell and Webb used to do, really. So, there's a phone-in featuring the suddenly vanishing Keith, and Erica gets Ash questions about legal aid. Meanwhile, following up on Sonia's David and Sarah connection, Don is having a meeting with David, in which we find out that the chap who played that lovely Mr. Chesterton in Doctor Who is actually playing a bit of a rungan in this, and that Don has received angry letters and has recordings of angry phone calls. We discover that David is a bit of a one for the ladies because, even though he's just been on the carpet, he's already eyeing up Erica through the glass as he declares that he had nothing to do with Sarah Marshall's death, which cuts to a lovely and moving scene between her parents in their anonymous hotel room. At 13, it's Eddie's the man. Don Satchley is having a post-interview coffee with Erica, where he brings up the matter of ethics surrounding his number one broadcaster, Lord help him, and she suggests, ta-da! that he might employ a private investigator to look into the situation and it looks as if our worlds are about to collide and our series is made. Eddie is lounging around on the knackered old boat which apparently saved his sanity but which is also rarely seen again. It's supposed to be his private space but she barges in anyway with this offer of work and despite the fact that he claims to be busy she points out that he's lying down which leads to a lateral thinking zinger but he does end up meeting Don in a bar built inside a an old lightship where they discuss a backstory of four marriages as Eddie Shoestring doodles caricatures on the back of beer mats. It's his art therapy, don't you know, and probably saved his sanity and admits that his name really is Shoestring and that he's had to double his fees because of it. Oh, the witty banter and wordplay is really flowing now, isn't it? Anyway, he agrees to look into the background of the dead girl for him, so that's nice. At 12, it's oily pinstripes, two dodgy businessman types in ghastly suits and CD offices played by Sean Arnold as Mr. Tony Henry and Brian Miller as the nervous Mr. Willis discussing the story in the newspaper. Those dark secrets and to nobody's real surprise that the Bel Air sauna is really a front for a call girl service. At number 11 it's dodgy geezers in another bar which may or may not be more of a party boat or the same bar redressed. Eddie meets the jazz loving dodgy geezer Len Tilly played wearing a fedora and overcoat by a not yet convict. Tony Haygarth, who used to employ Sarah Marshall when she first moved into the city. He tries to be amiable as he explains his investigations, but the conversation takes a dark turn as he does another of his doodles and is threatened. But 
he does manage to fob off the proposition made by two of Len's girls by the deft repositioning of a handbag. Eddie then meets one of the sinister businessmen in the lobby of a classy but seedy hotel, and we get to hear the backstory of how Eddie used to be an executive zombie, and his subsequent breakdown, the smashing up of a computer, being carted off to a lunatic asylum, his analysis, and how drawing helps keep him sane. The businessman, Mr. Willis, then counters all of this backstory by trying to bribe Eddie, which doesn't work. In with a bullet at ten, investigations. Eddie then breaks into Sarah Marshall's apartment and mooches through a photo album, which includes several other familiar faces, including Len Tilly, and in another poignant scene, is interrupted by her mother, who has come to sort out Sarah's things, and Eddie has to pretend to be a policeman to explain why he's there. Eddie then meets up with Laurie, the taxi driver, who drove her home once or twice, and has no axe to grind, seeing a profession as just one of the ways of the world, no questions asked. Anyway, for a tenor and a swift portrait for the wife, it looks nothing like her, ho ho, Eddie is finally pointed in the direction of straight in at number nine. It's the Bel Air Sauna, where the dodgy businessmen are nonplussed to discover that this thorn in their signs has just booked in and is asking questions. And so, whilst the rather lovely and helpful Barry, Richard Domfer, arranges to meet with some information in 15 minutes, bad things then naturally happen to Barry as he is overheard by Len in his two-toned shoes and also by his burly henchmen. And Barry, the one-hit wonder, is never seen again. At eight, only Eddie could go to the Chinese. Eddie heads out to buy a Chinese meal and is intercepted as he waits for his sweet and sour by the sweetly sour Len and his henchmen. And whilst nothing at all happens in the Chinese takeaway apart from some sinister threats, Eddie ends up being driven, bag of takeaway still in hand, in a car late at night to a meeting in an abandoned, much vandalised railway carriage. There, he meets up with the sinister, Mr. Tony Henry, who explains that this city is owned by businessmen and run by businessmen, in a tedious interlude which somehow proves that nothing ever really changes to stave off the boredom. Eddie draws Henry's face in the muck on the windows and makes some remarks about big fleas and little fleas, as he is being told in no uncertain terms to back off. Naturally, he is beaten up, but not killed, by Len's bouncer mate, and the next we see of Eddie is him arriving home, looking slightly the worse for wear, but still bearing his now very cold takeaway, which needs reheating, and hoping that Erica can bend her ethics enough to give him the address for the car number plate he's noticed and memorised. At seven, it's the filthy potter, in which Eddie meets an ever-so-flirty young pottery student who seems to be rather enjoying her other life as a call girl. At six, it's at home with David Kahn. Eddie visits David Kahn in the garden of his house, and we know that winter is coming as he turns up his jacket collar as David tells him all about his relationship with Sarah Marshall and how she knew where he kept the spare key to his Rolls Royce. At five, in at the deep end, Eddie meets Mr. Tony Hendry at the swimming pool of the private sports club all this is happening from, and he threatens him with Sarah's little black book that he retrieved from her flat, and with a rather subdued prototype of the angry Trevor acting we would see later in several episodes of Waking the Dead, he chucks him into the pool, noticing a list of companies on the wall as he departs. At four, it's snowing in London, as Eddie finally meets Sarah Marshall's father, who, it turns out, in one of those tragic twists of fate that can only happen 
pattern in these sorts of drama was the urgent appointment that Sarah Marshall was sent out to service on that fateful night. It all gets rather poignant, in a way, as we learn about their history and his remorse over the whole terrible incident. At three, it's private ear, as Eddie sketches his own silhouette around the Radio West 324 logo and announces to a frazzled Don Satchley that David is indeed in the clear, and he's not going to tell him why he knows this, even though Don's still planning on packing David off on holiday, never to be seen again. Meanwhile, none of the Radio West executives have managed to come up with any decent ideas for programs to fill in for him. Sonia, of course, connects the dots, looks at the modified logo, and suggests a new program, idea of her own, which means, bubbling under the top spot at number two, it's that program idea in full, as David Kahn hands over to unnamed presenter played by Stuart Bevan, who basically reads out the program pitch, or Radio Times listing, for the entire series, with Eddie Shoestring about to join Radio West as their very own private ear. So, if you've got a problem, just call 27272 right now. So that's episode number one of the series, Shoestring, that's Private Ear by Robert Banks Stewart, rewritten from a rejected script by Richard Harris, which caused him to leave the series and directed by Dougie Camfield. The main problem for me in this particular introductory episode is that it seems to try rather too hard to be self-consciously quirky, several of which seemed to be set up precisely to make Eddie seem far more interesting than he actually is, and many of them which seem to get forgotten about as the series progresses, unless one of the writers happens to pick that particular trait as a hook to hang a story on. And boy, does Eddie Shoestring have some quirks. There's the rumpled suits and the ratty ties, the pyjama jackets worn as shirts, the rather lovely but knackered red car, the fact he had a breakdown after working as a computer programmer, the fact that he's a part-time cartoonist, the fact that he owns and sometimes sleeps upon a boat. Oh, and if that wasn't enough, he also sometimes wrangles a yo-yo. You see? Quirky. Do you get it? Quirky. And writ large, his quirkiness is, too. That and the on-again, off-again relationship he has with his landlady, Erica, leads to the general air of quirkiness too as he doesn't have the sort of proper home life that the rest of us do but one of those tv detective home lives that's quirkily abnormal enough to make him interesting and lovable and makes enough of the viewing demographic want to take care of him the theme tune starting with that radio west fanfare before segueing into something far more jazzy and moody is nice enough and has that film noir mean street sleaze vibe to it which seems to be the kind of feel the series seems to be aiming for from time to time with eddie channeling the kind of down at heel gumshoe popularized by raymond chandler and his pals back in the day. Although similar pastiche noir ground had been trodden by Nicholas Ball as Hazel the year before, so there's nothing too innovative about that really, other than it's been given a bit of a BBC polish and pushed out as something new and quirky and innovative. An astonishing array of guest stars turn up in this too, alongside that rather impressive if much underused main cast, including the likes of Harry H. Corbett, Shirley Anfield, Christopher Biggins, Philip Bond, Diana Dawes, Michael Craig, Toya Wilcox, Bert Quart, Roy North, Linda Belling, Gordon Kay, Sylvia Coleridge and a whole load of people who would end up as EastEnders one day. Some of the supporting cast of Psychics really are terribly underused though, which is something of a shame, but perhaps if they were planning to make further series, those characters had more interesting storylines lined up for them which were not to be. So here I find myself pondering upon Shoestring, broadcast
broadcast on the BBC over those two series in 1979 and 1980. And I do have to remind myself that it was very popular indeed. So much so, in fact, that when its star Trevor Reeve refused to make any more and go off and pursue his stage career instead, the BBC had to sit down with its producers and come up with something similar but different. And because, as I mentioned earlier, that something turned out to be the phenomenally successful Bergerac, and it all turned out rather well in the end, really, given that Jim Bergerac did have his own set of quirks, but fewer of them, so lessons had obviously been learned. And, of course, Shouting Trevor would get back on the BBC eventually with the long-running Waking the Dead series, in which he got to shout a heck of a lot. So all is ultimately forgiven in Tellyland. But Shoestring is something of a curate's egg of a series. Good in parts, sometimes very good indeed, and even when it does fall towards the risible, it's still a terrifically watchable series. One which I found myself devouring all 21 episodes of in slightly over a fortnight earlier on in the year. So it can't be all that bad, can it? <laughs> Thank you very much, Martin. Yes, thank you, Martin. And he will be back. He will. Very soon. Yes. Well, next month, because yes. I know what he's doing already. You do. We've decided. You do. So, to round off, two mm-hmm. more things. Yes. City of Death. Yes. From the Salisbury Boys. Yes. And Warren joins us yet again to look at Wurzel Gamage. Yes. So we'll say thank you and yep. uh, see you all soon then. Okay then. Bye-bye. Bye. The thing is, I one of the reasons I like Doctor Who is the you know the stories are such rip snortling fun. No, basically, I, the thing that struck me about City is I didn't actually see any pre publicity, no trailers, nothing. Um, it was just open the radio time, City of Death, a title I'd never heard before. They visit Paris. Oh, novelty! So it's mm. novel, novel all the way. Yeah. So first overseas uh, yeah. shooting. And I'm not. I actually came out with an expletive when Scarroff takes his face off for the first <laughs> time because I was just whoa. And that is still one of my favourite cliffhangers. I mean, it's just it's so nice because it's got a total symmetry. Yeah. Because you've got you've got the the Scarroff the Jaggeroff at the beginning of the you think how the yes, does this yes. figure with all the stuff that's going on in Paris, which is nice and intriguing mm. anyway, and then. Oh yeah, clever, clever, and a nice shocking end cliffhanger. In yes. fact, all, all the, all I have to say, all three cliffhangers are absolute blinders. Yes, and Julian Glover is just perfect as Garlione. He's, he's yeah. witty and charming and evil, and, and he plays a sort of. You can, uh, as as he says, you know, you can see Scarif's point of view because he's trying to bring back the race, and uh, it's just cracking good story. It's and I must admit, when I, I rushed home from a children's party, that was Andrew Cook. Do you remember Andrew? Cook? Oh, indeed. Um, Andrew Cook. And Mark I Slade. In Mark Slade. I, no, it's Mark Slade's birthday party. And I rushed back to watch part two of City of Death. But no, we and I think that was a favourite of Mark Slade. So he obviously sort of. After the the party, obviously turned on to watch episode yes. two. Um, Catherine Shell, gorgeous as the Countess. Yes, um, very nice indeed, and still going strong. And I'm on Facebook with her. I haven't really talked about City of Death because she's more interested in about talking about her dogs or whatever. But, <laughs> or, or Shame. Space, space 1999. But um, shame. <laughs> and the heady days when you could actually smoke on TV. Yes, um, there's a hell of a lot of smoking in that. Yes, there should be. It's Paris, and it's the Paris in the seventies. Who hadn't got a fag on? Actually, and it was a nice. It was just l- nicely conceived. Yes, and, and one mustn't mm. forget David Fisher in all this because he actually created the story, and then of course had to give up because 
uh, personal reasons. And uh, Graham Williams and Douglas Adams locked lock themselves in Michael Hayes's yes the house and basically rejigged the whole thing and, yeah, and did a marvellous job I think that's my favourite thing in the whole of City Death is Duggan yeah he's yeah. superb he is great fun and I've my, met Tom Shadborn he's a great guy <sighs> my only regret is that he doesn't actually continue as a companion because he I keep thinking he would have worked so well I think in terms of male companions I mean he I mean he's, he's amusing he's a great character mm. has some great lines and works so well with Tom's Doctor absolutely but he is to a degree a one-trick pony. I think Duggan would have worked quite well in Creature from the Pit. Yeah, yes, hitting the guards. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, Lala yeah. Walker had gone off and been captured and done the whole. Don't worry, Doctor. I'll <laughs> I'll knock the creature out. <laughs> uh, Duggan could have hung around with Tom and sort of gone. Yeah, I'll, I'll punch him. Yeah, yeah no, he no, certainly no, would have no, got no. stuck into the bandits, wouldn't he? Um, exactly. He would have worked quite well. Creature. Yeah, but interesting. But I mean, back in the room. Um, <laughs> I mean, one my favourite character was Kerensky. Because he was such a mm. nice little old fella, I was actually in fact quite sort of oh, you know, when he gets turned into a skeleton. Yes, yeah. and I actually again I had a dream uh, about between episodes three and four that Tom spent most of the last episode trying to turn him back again, <laughs> <laughs> and of course because I because I suppose because I wanted you know for him mm. to come back, and he even and Scaroff sort of keeps you know always prevents him from doing it. And he even draws a diagram for Duggan and Romana. <laughs> And interestingly, in the dream, um, Scaroff does away with Herman when he's no longer of any use. But well, of course, it was very much the reverse. Mm. And I've got a laughter track on Sergeant Death. Someone's done that before. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody had. I have to say, talking of laughter, though, I ha- I would have to say, if ever I'm having a bad day, I just remember that first scene in part two where Tom comes in and plays the fool and, you know, sort of... Mm. And he's he's working off the Countess, is very serious. Mm. And it's just beautiful dialogue. Mm. Uh, my dear, I don't think he's as stupid as this is. My dear, nobody could be as stupid as he seems. <laughs> <laughs> it's yes. just lovely attack and, you mm. know, it's just brilliant. It's almost Troutlesque, And I love that, also the set design, I love that machine. And in fact, mm. when we, a month after the repeat, I joined. Uh, I went to Highbury, and one of the, uh, we we had history of Mrs. Parrot. Oh, um, good lord! And w- I, w- one of our first things about history was to design a time machine. And <laughs> I, sure enough, I think I few put ah. a couple of prongs in there from that machine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I couldn't help myself. But uh, and of course, a quick word about James Goss's brilliant novelization, which is yeah, I've not read it, but um, it's great. Yeah. It really does it justice because it also goes. It has the courtesy to go back to David Fisher's original story as well and incorporate some things. Oh, right. And Douglas Adams, and you know, it's kind kind of it's a very fa- faithful to all, all renditions. Well, I find it's interesting in Doctor Who stories in that it's for a series about time travellers, one that's actually interested in. Play- Playing around with time, yeah, which doesn't happen. Very yes, often. that's very true. Until later, uh, new here with the timey wimey stuff. Yeah, it's in the area. Absolutely, and interestingly enough, in the book, although we see Kerensky aged to death in seconds on the screen, mm. uh, and Duggan and Romana and Scarlioni see him aged to death in seconds on the screen, in the book. We see it from the professor's point of view, and he's just stuck in the bubble for the rest of his life, and just sees time mm. go slowly by. As uh, in, in yeah, his, yeah. So in actual <laughs> fact, in a way, it's far more horrific in the book, and it's it's very very effective reading of it. And I have to say, Dudley Simpson. Never better. Yeah, I mean, he's it, just superb. Throughout. It's, it's a very satisfying Doctor Who story. Yeah. Probably the best in the season. Oh, he's, I mean, yeah. for, for me, I think it would probably, if I had to go with a, a single 
story I probably city. Yeah, uh, easily. Good monsters, good scary, funny, you know, there's got everything. Scary, funny, Tom's um top is full. Yeah. City was one of the ones that again, like Destiny. We were discussing this this afternoon, weren't we? You know, it's Yeah, I think it's another one that I remember better because of seeing the repeat as well. I agree with everything you say. I do think it slows down a bit. About the beginning of episode four, I was that's the point. I'm sort of don't think episode four is half as good as episodes one, two, and three. But I think I feel like they kind of like okay, well, how are we going to sort sort this out? I think I go I go as far as to say it was a weak episode four. I, I, I quite like the fact that when things go awry and he, he randomly comes back to the... It's his butler that actually does him in because of the... Oh, there's a monster! <laughs> things I, I, I like are the, like drawing on the fakes. Yeah, that's lovely. That's, that's, mm, a, that's a comedy moment that really, really works. Yes. Um, yes. It's just not... It's, it's really nice. And I like the fact that you've got... You go back into history as well and you've got that love... Again, all the cliffhangers are lovely, but you, you've got this... Whole, the thing when Tancredi comes in and oh, it's the same bloke. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not silly humour; it's a kind of nice quirky humour that emerges yeah. in the story. Yeah, it is, and and all, all that that lovely scene in part three where you see the different scarabs. Mm. And he, he links with all his uh, uh, superb. This is the thumbs grease. Yeah, oh, yes. How very discourteous! Is that and wondering how did scare off with one eye look at two eyes? But uh, yeah, and also uh, <laughs> um, uh, in years of marriage with with the countess. Uh, that does beg some questions. Yes, um, I, it does explain it in the book that it's it's a sort of non-sexual relationship, which doesn't That's really good, ring true with the way Julian Glover and. and and uh, but, but they're a lovely pairing. Yes, um, but she might have noticed his uh, scaly green spaghetti appendages. Yeah, and and presumably he had some spare masks because he completely sort of. I know. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a very nice model work as well. You got to mention. Yes, that. Ian Schoons. Yes, in his last Doctor Who story, I believe. Is it? Ah, that the wonderful model. spider yeah. spaceship. Yeah. Lovely. It's beautifully done. From the technical point of view, that's just one of the, mm. the highlights of the story. Also, it's a good it's a good grab at the beginning. Mm. You're expecting this story about Paris and you've got primeval Earth and, yes, yes. and Scarif and, and that one, and you can actually see into the controls as well, which is nice. Um, uh, yeah, you know me. I, I kind of like that kind of story. Yeah. Le- leaps time zones and whatever yeah. it is. It's lovely. <laughs> do you think it influenced you? Yes. Yeah. No doubt about it. I do, I do like the structure of yeah. uh, City of Death. I do you like the, the very intelligent leaping of time zones? It comes from out of the story. Yeah. Considering this time period, you also, if you compare it to, say, the other long running series like Bond films, you've got Moonraker, which just leaps from place to place for no apparent reason whatsoever. <laughs> oh, Bond's in Venice. Really? I thought he's investigating space shuttles. That's. <laughs> um, yeah, no, no, City of Death is much better structured than a 70s Bond film, mm-hmm. which, um, considering how much money was spent on one compared to the other, that's, that's quite a compliment. <laughs> it's, you, it's interesting to see how many people at school seem to watch that one more than anything, any other story I can think of, possibly because of the strike. Well, yeah, because well, if he were not there. Simon Bachelor at school, um, I overheard him have a conversation after episode three saying, Oh, did you see that Chinesey man turn into a skeleton in Doctor Who? <laughs> 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 Sorry, David Graham. I think you're supposed to be Russian, aren't you? No. Um, but <laughs> lots of clever ideas. But um, do you feel the? Or do because I, I know you have a trouble with ends. Sometimes you, you quite um, you, you, they disappoint you quite a lot. Well, it comes down to being quite a simple way to resolve it all. Um, considering how 
complex it sort of build up but um, I mean it still leaves it quite near the top of the season for me but yeah I think there are more flaws than people care to see because like of the news <laughs> when he rips yeah. the seat you can actually see the news <laughs> because, of, because of it then it's probably something I've come to over time myself yeah I think well this is probably being it doesn't get judged very harshly because of being how good it is but it's not it's not um, flawless but, uh, yeah, um, if you were to go in depth, you could probably... But on the yeah. surface, as a, as a Doctor Who adventure, I mean, well, what would you change? I would, one thing I would do, and this is in, out, totally out of Michael Hayes' control, and, and that is I'd let the sun come out in Paris... Paris looks very drab. Yes, that is true. Yes, <laughs> it's, yeah. got, it's, it's bank holiday, and I think it's been snowing or teeming with rain. But uh, yeah, it's it's very, it it looks very dreary. <laughs> and I, yeah, the Paris in the sunshine would have been nice, but but it's Paris. You, you, you don't you don't really care with Dudley's music following you through. Tom Lala, super. I mean, Julian Glover just is such a quality bit baddie. And and Duggan is such a great <laughs> assistant. <laughs> Finally, Warren. Yes. It's Wurzel Gummidge, a home fit for scarecrows from the 4th of March, 1979. Mm-hmm. Good fun, I think. <laughs> it yes. was good fun, that was. Yeah. So this is all about Wurzel Gummidge stealing furniture, basically. Yes. <laughs> yes. He's a tea leaf. He is. is. Yeah. Now, if you were the village Bobby, mm-hmm. and you got these reports of all these furniture being stolen... And you found them in the middle of a field, which is eventually what happened. Yeah. What would be your next sort of move to do? I'd be looking for the house that was round it that was stolen. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we we start off with it piddling with rain. They've got mm-hmm. the rain machine mm-hmm. out, mm-hmm. and uh, John and Sue are visited in the caravan by by Wurzel. Well. Outside the caravan. Yeah, he's, he's never allowed in, in no. because they've got an electric fire, which he considers he dangerous. Electric no, is well, bad, he, and fire is connected yeah. to the two are worse enough. Yeah. yeah. No, but the reason they won't let him in, or that oh, John won't let him in, is because he's all muddy. He's just covered in shite, right. isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you sort of watch this back, and you think, you know, what a hero for kids this is, mm. because. You know, he's dirty, he's muddy. He's really abusive as well <laughs> to people. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't matter who they are, he's just abusive to them. And yeah, and then he's just a thief. Clear off then he's mm-hmm. going, isn't he? So, but we also get um, our our first sight of the singing head. Yes. Which is in oh, a, yes. a barrel of water, mm. just pickling it. I just thought it would rotted, not pickled, <laughs> unless it's like really salt water. We did say... They washed their heads in salty water. Yeah, all right, okay. So, it's a year, isn't it? So. Yeah. Uh, I was just, just amazed that you know you've got a scene with two kids watching while he decapitates himself. Yeah, and puts a fresh head on. I mean, yeah. that's wrong. Interestingly, though, in this 
episode, you don't actually see the head come off. Because oh, he wiggles it about and then sticks it in the barrel of water. Yeah. And mm. just comes up with the new one. So you don't actually have a headless body scene. That's a little... That's a little later. I mean, that's obviously just, you, mm-hmm. you will get those. That's so. horrific, though. Yeah. And then we, we get a bit of what I would regard as time-wasting. Yeah. <laughs> as we get uh, Pertwee singing a song. Yes. Or, as you always used to say, Lisa, speaking a song. Speaking a song, yeah. Because this is yeah. how to speak words of these. Mm-hmm. Blatant padding. Yeah. W were O were R was Ed were E were L was L. And so forth. <laughs> Which, of course is based on the theme tune yes. and c- does come out as a single as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. But yes, Warren, you said you've seen you saw the uh, the musical version. The stage show. Yes. Of this. It was at Her Majesty's. This was years before the Phantom of the Opera started making that its home. But yeah, I remember going to see that. Yeah. And uh, have you got any memories of, of that or or not really? I I I was just encapsulated by John Pertwee. Yeah. He was just amazing. It, it was just the, the the main set for me as I remember it is just the farm and the the caravan mm. and then the two children come on and the adults leave them behind and they just go up to the the, the field and there he is yeah. but Wurzel then sort of wanders around the village nicking oh, furniture yeah. <laughs> including a huge grandfather clock yes. that he's probably broken now it's the master's TARDIS he's getting his own back <laughs> yeah and a big sort of table from the sort of cafe the tea room tea rooms or whatever when he takes it up and puts it to himself, do you like the fact that he's actually stolen a doorway as well with a door <laughs> in it yes. oh yes he uses his back door but again I was sort of saying over the course of the series you know Wurzel gets up to various sort of no goodness if mm-hmm. that's such a term in, in the village and would you have thought that people would start to recognise him after a while I think they would have done yes yeah. the village Bobby's totally inept yeah. isn't he <laughs> And of course, you've also got Michael Ripper as well. Oh, yes, in this yeah. one. And what yeah. was it you said, Warren? You know, is there anything that Michael Ripper's not done? Yes, has he never been in anything in the sixties and seventies? Because Talking Pictures TV are currently showing free wheelers mm. as well, and yeah. uh, we've not really seen free wheelers. No, no. Oh, it's a joy to behold with Ronald Lee Hunt and his unconvincing Arr. disguises. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so interestingly, no Crow Man. In this episode, no, he's not in every episode, is he? The crow yeah, man. So. I, I just just thought that, that was interesting that mm. Wurzel and the kids basically sort of carry this episode between them, don't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you get a few other characters, but nobody's got a got a huge part. If you'll pardon the expression, mm. are any of the villagers returning characters out of interest? I, I think they must be. Yeah, I mean, obviously Michael Ripper comes back yeah. a mm. fair bit, but yeah, I think you you sort of keep an eye out. You're probably notice a sort of repertory company of, yeah. of villagers and, and he must like live that. in the southern area then so from freewheelers to to wurzel isn't I it i don't know that's a good point actually because yeah this is, is all southern stuff isn't mm. it? Yeah. and i think he might pop up in dick barton i can't remember because you remember uh you i remember you mentioning dick barton yeah well we, mm. we, we will inve- we, we will investigate dick barton yes. shortly hopefully when it arrives but watching this episode on dvd it really does show up what a state the actual dvd oh, yes. releases mm-hmm. are in that there was bits where it was just so grimy and muddy the film and dark mm. and you, oh, you very really, dark really can't see what's going on in some of the no. some of the shots and they have managed to clean some of it up mm. But at the moment, I believe there's no interest in a remaster of the, uh, of well, the film brushes because they've got all the original film brushes. Yeah, but, but as I said to you, what's interesting that 
of the things that we've chosen to look at for 1979, mm. 2019 mm-hmm. sees a relaunch for Wurzel Gummy. Yes, yeah. they are. I don't know if they're still making it now, but they've been doing it over well, the summer. Well, they've just announced some of the cast, yes. haven't they? Yes. Haven't they? And, mm. um, Apart uh, from Mackenzie Crook. Yes, and Michael Palin certainly sounds yes. interesting. Mm-hmm. Yes, as uh, the green man, not the crow man. Yeah, and as you mm. said, Lisa, are they going for an Aunt Sally closer to the books? Looking possibly? at the actress of cast, I believe they are, yes. Because yeah. yes. again, Wurzel says he's going to get married in this episode yes. and maybe have kids. Mm. And it, it's interesting the way he says about like turnips can grow up to be scarecrows. Because yeah. yeah. there's a scene in one of the books where he's teaching turnips. He's pulled a load of them up out of the oh, ground right. and he's holding a little school for scarecrows and he's just sort of teaching th- things to the turnips and at one point he sort of goes off and he says right you lot can carry on learning by yourselves so the idea that the turnips are sentient in in the first place that they've got some intelligence because mm. we never really go into the sort of birth of a scarecrow in 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 the series well, do he, we he go no. he says about the furniture doesn't the, the furniture doesn't have feelings except for beds because they're made of straw, straw. Yeah. straw or mattresses are yeah. so yeah it, it's this weird sort if of, it grows you, out the ground it's sentient yeah it's and and I, i've said before how does the whole wurzel's memory thing work with him swapping heads because mm. if he takes a head off and swaps it for a different one. That new head has got the memories of the previous head. Mm. So has he got some sort of cloud-based storage thing that he uploads all the information to some sort of crowman net or something mm. like that? Well, he does say in this one, because they, they obviously rescue him from being arrested, and he says he'll remember it. He'll put his remembering head on in the yeah. morning. Assuming that he remembers he to, to put, put the remembering yeah. head on. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a fairly sort of disposable episode, because, mm. again, we haven't got our Aunt Sally in it. No, she isn't. No. No. She, she turns up in the next episode. Yes. But I did like the sort of, the, the bit at the end when they all go off dancing. It's, yeah. it's, mm. it's it sort of makes you feel a warm and fuzzy, doesn't it? Does, it does. There was a very yeah. warm feeling I mean, it, there, it does yeah. push it more a bit towards the stuff that John Pertwee likes. Yeah. You, you can tell this is now a series but it's tailored for, for him, him. Yeah, yeah, as, as so. you've got the sort of song and dance stuff as, yeah. as well and it does become a little bit more and he gets to do musical voices, yeah. doesn't it yeah. and slapstick because he's as, as you say you noticed he's the voice on the radio yeah right yeah. at the start you know doing his sort of inferno voice thing well, yeah. was, it was more sort of, I think it was Irish it was it? Irish yeah, yeah. 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 yeah but yeah we need we need a voice on the radio get Pertwee to do it yeah <laughs> Well, then they save some hiring somebody else for just <laughs> yeah. for a really small thing. But yeah, a lovely little little episode. I just mm. said nothing too too special. No, but mm. yeah, the, the uh, I mean the, this 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 whole series. You know, perhaps we should go back doing to doing it in order one day. Cause yes, I don't think we have. We just, just no. watched random episodes generally. Yeah. Haven't we? You can do that, so. and it probably again it probably repays. Mm-hmm. You know, doing it in the right order. So. So maybe one day we'll see. Mm-hmm. But there you go. There's there's Wurzel Gamage. Mm-hmm. And there's 1979 done. Yes. And wow. I think it's true to say that we could have done several episodes of this podcast just about 1979. Yes. Because yeah. Yeah. the list of stuff that I've had to leave off... Mm-hmm. Has, has been amazing. Yeah. Quite so, often yeah. you said to me, leave off. Yeah. <laughs> leave it. <laughs> yeah. Don't touch that. Yeah. <laughs> leave it alone. Um but Martin's poem at the don't touch that, Warren. Uh, Martin's poem at the start. 
you yeah. know, there's dozens yeah. of shows we yeah, haven't you, even gone near. You forget how much new stuff there was in yeah. 1979. Yeah. So yeah, uh, yeah, just one year, yes. and uh, maybe we'll repeat this one day with yeah. a with a different year. Yes. But for the moment, we'll say thank you and mm-hmm. see you yeah. again. Okay. Bye bye. Bye. was episode 40 of Round the Archives. Starring Lisa Parker, Andrew Trowbridge, Warren Cummings, Martin Holmes, Nick Goodman, Joe Bunsell and Paul Chandler. On the musical side, you heard Dan Tate and Paul Chandler. The script for Shoestring Privateer was by Robert Banks-Stewart. And the producer was Robert Banks-Stewart. Gooseberries are the pickings from Mr. Smith's fruit garden at the same time, 125.